Welcome to the official podcast of Fourternia.com. We have the power. I'm your host, AJ, aka Voodoo Magic, aka Zor. And sitting hundreds of miles away from me is my right hand man at arms, Colt, aka Red Pyramid, aka Dad at Arms. How you doing today, Colt? I'm doing very good, AJ. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing good too. Me too. Uh, yeah. And this is. This is because today we have an exciting episode. Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone who's been with fourternia.com since the beginning, um, I wouldn't have created that site if it wasn't for the two, uh, 2021 Netflix series, Masters of the Universe Revelation. I mean, this fourternia podcast that Colt and I do would not exist if it wasn't for this amazing show that fueled our fire and support and appreciation. So it's extremely exciting for both Colt and I to have one of the creators of this series on with us today. Uh, one of its writers on this podcast, and he's not just a writer of three episodes, but he's also a writer on the Revelation prequel comics as well. So, without further ado, you know him, we love him, we'd like to welcome Tim Sheridan. Hi, Tim. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. You and love me? Oh, to have you. Thanks. Yeah, of course we love you. <laughs> I love that you Definitely. have, I just noticed you have Revelation up there, uh, the comics up there behind you. I do, call. yep, and this is, this is actually the one that, that you signed at one oh. of the comic events. I wasn't yeah. I wasn't able to be there to get it signed. I had to buy it secondhand and have it shipped. But oh, I do have man. it and it's it's framed in that a nice a little fun, frame. That was a fun event, right? Kevin and Yeah, Rob it looked David. like it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah. There's a lot of people. Yeah, there. my goodness. Yeah, I remember I, I got one of those those books that was signed by Kevin Smith and yourself, Tim, and from um Rob David. And Rob yeah. and and I commented before, Rob David's signature looks like an affinity sign. It's just like yeah. It's figure eight. <laughs> it's Maybe it's a clue. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Motu infinity. And we um, would know. We don't know. We don't know what's in store. You know, um, Tim, our YouTube audience already knows this um, this colorful jacket I'm wearing. Uh, this extremely spectacular Masters of the Universe uh, Revelation jacket is uh, something I only wear on special occasions, and you, sir, are a special occasion. Oh, so. Yep. <laughs> That's very kind. So. Very kind. <laughs> have you seen these before? They're by Chalkline. They're like. Does it have Oracle on the back? Uh, no, this one has, um, yeah, this one has Castle, Castle Grayskull oh. on the back. Yeah, yeah, I had one, or I had one, that was like all, all Orco. And um, yeah. yeah, that's great. It's got the that's revelation. Beautiful. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, you should only wear that for special occasions. Don't wear yeah. that out. Especially no. because <laughs> especially because Masters of the Universe Revelation is is done. And now Masters of the Universe Revolution is is coming. So that's that's it. It's it's a it's a a moment in time now. Revelation. It's a collector's item now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Which I can it's see. Just, it's just gone up in value. Way, I am very jealous of both of your Motu setups behind you. Uh, I don't, I have stuff from various other things that I've worked on some Motu stuff. I only put up my Orco cell for you, um, which Kevin 
Smith uh, gifted me at a, a PowerCon when we were getting started in the process. Um, and uh, but uh, then, but these guys are over here, the Mondo Hordak, and uh, which was a gift from someone else uh, associated with uh, the Revelation show. And these guys who are uh, one of my my favorite uh, trios. And also <laughs> see. Uh, Lynn and, and uh, Scareglow. Yeah. yeah and I so see this, the... this behind me here, this is just a small portion of my my setup. On the wall that I'm looking at right now, I've got an entire wall full of He-Man action figures and toys and yeah, my, posters. My He-Man shelves are over there. I don't have the... I should have maybe just turned the camera for this. <laughs> I'm sure your collections must completely would would put my my little pittance of a collection to shame but um but some cool stuff all this revelation stuff too aj like that yeah. is that look at that that draped behind you that gray skull print behind you that's yeah, it's, a flag. That a it's a flag it's a flag yeah did yeah, you have to made did somebody make that did somebody uh... sell that this someone sold it. I believe it was on eBay. I'm not sure if it was official or not. I can't be honest. <laughs> this jacket definitely is, but I'm not sure. But the flag is great. And I have a carpet behind underneath me as well. Oh, great. And, uh, Do you have yeah. the um, Grayskull Dungeon rug? Um, have you seen Super 7? I've, see, I've seen that one. It's like the great with all the creatures coming up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one's good. Yeah, I have so the rug. The Teddy rug at my feet is the old. Uh, the the rug that I'm standing on is the old. Uh, the old toy poster where it's got Castle Grayskull in the background, and then on either side are the evil warriors and the heroic warriors, with He Man and Skeletor on on their cats facing off. So that's what I'm looking at a, on my floor. A rug. This is all I have. Just have hardwood floors. Maybe we'll paint them. That's what. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> no. I used to I'm be just, a much collector. I used to I used to be a real serious action figure collector. I mean, I still collect a bunch, but um, but much more when I was younger. In fact, it's how I sort of became friends with Teddy Viacelli back in the day. Like we've been friends for more than half our lives, <laughs> wow. and um, we uh, but but we kind of shared a, a a love for action figures and, and eighties stuff in particular. The shows we grew up on which some of them are depicted here behind me. Um, but uh, yeah, mo most of that stuff is, is some of it's made its way into my office. Some of it is in mothballs. Some of it is in, I have a den that is really the toy room. That's just wall to wall shelves of toys, but nothing like his collection. My goodness, that guy. I don't oh, know if you've his, ever seen his is fantastic. It's, it's absurd. It's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. He has this all beat. It puts us all the sure. Yep. yep. <laughs> we'll never, nobody will ever catch him. No. Nobody. No. <laughs> No, we're not worthy in his presence. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing, though, you are like that's the thing about him. <laughs> you know. Well, that's yeah. you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like he is another one of this creative team that is just so nice to talk to, and you can just oh, yeah. feel the love for this franchise and for the fans, and just as a good person. Like you know, you know Ted is a guy who, off of him. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who has he has a certain base of power in Hollywood based on his position at Netflix right now. And the other companies, these were Disney and, and the hub he worked at before. And, um, and, and, and in that capacity, I, you know, of course, 
you know, because he respects what I do, he's opened a couple of doors for me. And that's been really great. But I always, I always think about like the most important thing for me in, in our relationship is not the professional part of it. It's the personal part of it. It's the fact that when you work in this business, you can be at any level, like I'm, I'm nobody in this business, but like, say like Kevin Smith, he's like a big celebrity, but like the problems and the things that come up for a Kevin Smith are the same kind of problems that come up for a guy like me, except on a much smaller scale. He deals with them on a really big scale. And when those things come up in Hollywood, they can really mess with your head. And it's a really, it's so important to have friends who the minute you see them or talk to them immediately remind you of who you are. And Teddy has always been that guy for me, always. And so for me, that's the, if you, if you told me that I could, and by the way, we just happen to also have a great professional relationship as well. That's rare. You can't always have both of those things. Um, but if you told me I had to choose between those two, a personal friendship and a professional relationship, I would choose the personal friendship any day of the week because it's the thing that really feeds me more than anything. That's, I say all that because I can't say enough about him because he's my friend, but also you hear this kind of stuff when you talk to somebody like Kevin Smith. I mean, Kevin and other big name executive people and directors and A-listers in this town, when they work with Teddy, will tell you that Teddy's the favorite, their favorite executive they've ever worked with um, because he's a creator first. He is an artist. He is, he feels much, he feels, I think, even more comfortable being with writers and directors and artists because we all speak the same language. And he's the unfortunately rare exec in this town who is really there to help you make your thing the best it can be. Not completely separated from how good it needs to be for Netflix or something like that. Of course, that's a consideration for him too. But his drive is to help creators, people like Kevin, make Masters of the Universe and, and Rob David and Mattel, make Masters of the Universe revelation and revolution um, you know, the, the best thing that they can be. Just so happens that he's also a lifelong, huge He-Man nerd <laughs> and cares as much about it, if not more than a lot of people. And I think that's what's important to remember. You know, we, we we saw the outrage that people had towards it about how, you know, your team, the creative team weren't fans and stuff like that. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. You know, you've got people like Ted, who is the biggest fan there is when it comes yeah. to Masters of the Universe. Yeah, I mean, Rob we, don't have, we, we got, yeah, we got super lucky that, you know, as fans, we're lucky to have somebody in those positions of power that you're talking about who has yeah. a deep deep long lifelong love for these this franchise listen i was a fan before revelation but i was nowhere near the fan that teddy was growing up because i was you know we did that thing when we were kids i mean i you know i was a transformers kid transformers and then gi joe were my big number one and number two when i was a kid he-man was probably third um and uh and they were just so different that they it wasn't something I could really loop together. Whereas there were like, you know, comics where Transformers and G.I. Joe did things together. So it's like I could play all those things together. Um, it felt weird to have, you know, Prince Adam hanging out with Optimus Prime for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in when I, you know, as a lifelong fan and a comic book fan and, and animation fan, um, like when the when the 2000 series 
2000X, however we were, when that came out, you know, I was all in because I was so excited that they were the, the, the take that they were, the, the direction they were taking, the, the, the POV that they were taking on how to make a, a new He-Man and the Masters of the Universe show was, was something I was really excited about. And I also really liked the Four Horsemen sculpted toys, which um, didn't really catch on as much as I wish they had. They needed better articulation, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, uh, uh, but you know, then when given the opportunity to come back and and work on Revelation, I, I was it was like a perfect time for me. I had I had just left Warner Brothers, where I was on staff working on. I had worked on uh, a two part movie adaptation of the long Halloween, the Batman book, which is fantastic by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, deluxe edition coming out in September. We uh, combined Wonderful. both movies. In one thing just announced uh, yes, a couple days ago. Um, and, and I've done a movie called Superman man of tomorrow, which um, uh, once I was, and that was, I wrote that one third and then it ended up getting released first before long Halloween, but in the order originally was long Halloween one, two, and then man of tomorrow. And I finished Man of Tomorrow, and then I was done at Warner Brothers. And I was like, oh, man, what am I doing next? You know, that's kind of the nature of the business that I'm in. What's my next job going to be? I've been very fortunate to get to work on things that may have meant so much to me in my life. I mean, growing up, I'm the, one of the biggest Batman fans you could imagine. And I got to write this huge adaptation of this huge Batman story and Superman. And um, I mean, what do I do next? And I got a call from War for Cybertron, the Transformers show uh, on Netflix. And I, I ended my Warner Brothers job on Friday and I started on War for Cybertron on Monday. <laughs> um, so it was wonderful. And then the next thing that came right after that was I got a call about Revelation. So I went right from Superman to, uh, to Transformers and then to He-Man <laughs> in one summer. And it was, it was just like, you know, the, that's the dream. I, it, it's just this, you know, little kid, Tim would be like, come on, you know, like, that's, it's never going to be, you're never going to get to work on all that stuff. You know, um, I just can't, I can't believe how fortunate I've been. By the way, the other weird thing that happened is I started working at DC comics and I started working on a Shazam book while I was working on masters of the universe. And I suddenly was like making jokes online about how I was, you know, like the similarities between Prince Adam and Billy Batson, you know, in terms of how, you know, they call down the power, the lightning, and, you know, the comes down and imbues them with, you know, and, um, and they're a kid who, you know, kind of, or young, you know, young guy who kind of grows into, you know, his, becomes his, a man in his prime. And, uh, and I was like, I can't believe I'm getting the opportunity to, to explore this concept. At the same time, here I am, 10 year old Tim inside this grown up Tim body, just like, <laughs> just like he, I like to compare myself to email. Um, and, uh, and I'm experiencing this on, in my own weird way too. You know, it was a, it was a weird, weird summer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll you... tell you what, be... I'll Go tell ahead, you what, AJ. before, yeah, before we start to dig deep into masters of the universe, um, we we're hoping that you could just give our listeners and our viewers a, um, you know, a little taste about Tim Sheridan, uh, Sheridan outside of Masters of the Universe, like your your beginning and personal journey as a creator in the entertainment industry. So uh, I, starting off as a kid, I I thought 
like I grew up in the eighties and I was, it was an embarrassment of riches. If you watched cartoons and read comics in the eighties, the, and especially I think in comics was an interesting thing happening, which were, we were kind of getting away with comics being more adult and, and, and those kinds of stories, stories that didn't talk down to me really inspired me and got me really excited as a kid. I, I was a voracious reader. And so I wanted, I didn't want to watch a cartoon or read a comic book and think it was, this is for babies. Um, and then, you know, things like, you know, Dark Knight Returns came out and it was the, you know, it's certainly not for babies. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and, and not just in terms of the subject matter, but, uh, you know, in terms of like things like violence or swear words or things like that. But the themes that they were exploring were so adult that only an adult could write it. And kids wouldn't understand on, you know, everything that was being said. The thing that I've, I learned in my life as a, as a kid, as a fan of stuff that I've taken into my work as an adult is kids reach for it. Kids watch and read things in an aspirational way. Like you want to watch the stuff that your older brother or your older sister's watching, or you want to read the stuff that they're into or listen to the music that they're into. And I think that that is that reaching and stretching for that stuff is how we grow. And that's how I grew as a, in the eighties, as a kid, I, I reached for things like dark Knight returns and transformers, the movie, where my hero, Optimus Prime, died in the beginning of the movie. And I had to figure out, like, that whole movie was about, hey, sometimes the bad guys win. You know, sometimes the good guys aren't strong enough to win. And that's a big concept for a kid to deal with. And but those things just opened my mind to story and possibility. And um and so, and also as, you know, somebody, I had a huge Transformers collection and G.I. Joe, um, I did not have a big He-Man collection. He-Man was not my number one, um, but playing with toys was a way for me to, you know, create stories. <laughs> I created scenarios and stories just like many of us did. Um, and I just never really lost my affinity for that. I did get a little lost in the weeds at, when I went to high school I didn't understand that being a writer, I just didn't understand that I could live and be a writer. I kind of thought I could be a movie director. That's a job I under, I think is a thing, you know? And, and then I was in plays on stage and people told me I was really good. So I was like, oh, well, I guess maybe I'm an actor. And so like, I went to drama school uh, after high school. I studied theater and, and that, Happily, that education was completely rooted in story. Like, I wouldn't know anything about how a story is structured if I hadn't gone to drama school. I wouldn't know anything about Aristotle's poetics, which explained to me the elements, the necessary elements of, of good story, of actual story. Um, and, and drama. And, you know, I think one of the things I, I think, one of the things I am most proud of, I would say, uh, in the work that I do is I think I've got a good ear for dialogue. I think I can write when you, you know, like when I sit down to put words to what Orko and Evil Lynn are thinking and feeling, I, I usually have a pretty easy time of, of getting into their heads and, and having, putting that conversation on, 
on the page. And I think that's because that's what I studied. I, I, I learned about drama, which is literally characters talking to each other and telling story in that way and, and, and advancing narrative through that, through talking and conversation and characters understanding each other. Um, so I tend to be more shy about action uh, stuff in scripts. I, if you, if I will write you the greatest uh, Masters of the Universe episode of two people sitting in a room talking to each other for, for half an hour. And it will be the least interesting thing you've ever visually looked at, but there'll be some great ideas in there, you know? <laughs> um, so it's always, that's always a constant challenge for me. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Let me go back and just say like, so I went to drama school when I left, I came out to Hollywood and I was a successless actor for a while. Like, cause I could, I was a stage actor. Like I studied Shakespeare and I came out here and I was like, okay, well I came to Hollywood to be a Shakespearean actor. Like that's, if you know anything about Hollywood, that's the dumbest thing anyone could, literally the dumbest thing someone could do. Um, so, but I, but there was some reason, there was some reason I wanted to be here and I needed to be here and I felt I had to be here. And, uh, and I chased it for a little while. And like I say, I was just totally successless. Um, and finally woke up one day and I had told, I had been telling myself since college, that I couldn't be a writer because other people, this is a trick by the way, that a lot of us play on ourselves and you can replace the word writer with anything. I would tell myself consciously, well, I can't be a writer because other people do that so much better. And it was a way I think to sort of sabotage any, uh, any attempt at going down that road in case I failed or something. I guess I was thinking I was gonna protect myself. I think a lot of us do that. And something happened that just sort of made me one day say, and this isn't such a nice way to put it, but I was, I just said, you know what? Other people do do it better, but there's a lot of people who do it really poorly and they have really nice houses up in the Hollywood. <laughs> and like, I could be at least as good as those guys and probably better, uh, which the minute I started framing it that way, I saw a path forward. And so what I did was I sat knowing really nothing about writing a screenplay. I sat down, this is many years ago now, and I wrote, I had an idea for a story for a, a, a half hour four quad, which is what we call like a kids and family, all ages genre show, which it was kind of like supernatural fiction, sort of in the vein of like Doctor Who or something like that. And I wrote a pilot episode for that story, for that series idea. And I gave it to a friend of mine who was working in the business, who had sort of worked his way up in the business. And I said, uh, can can you read this? And he was a creative executive. I said, could you give me, I, I, I'm not looking for any kind of handout here, or I don't want, I'm not looking for you to tell me if this is good or not, or I'm not trying to sell it to you. I want the real network notes. What would, if I handed this in to a network, what would the notes look like that I get back? So, so that I can gauge if I can do this or not. And that friend is a wonderful friend, read that script gave me 
in a very caring way, gave me like really solid, real notes. Probably pulled some punches. I don't know now that I look, look, look back on it, but still there were some hard hits in there. And it was one of the greatest sort of experiences because I got some confidence and I thought, wow, I think I actually can do this. And, um, and short, I mean, I sold, then I sold an animated series to VH1 right after that, which they never made like right after that, out of nowhere. And wow. just because I kind of went in with some confidence and then that guy hired me, the guy who did give me the notes, hired me to write some um, webisodes that tied into a series that he was working on. And I wrote those webisodes and, uh, and that got the attention of the guy who was the showrunner on that series. And he ended up hiring me to do work on a couple of shows he was working on. And that's the way Hollywood works. Like it, and it all started with a guy who was a friend of mine who was kind enough to give me the real network notes on a thing that I was writing. And that guy, his name is Teddy Biaselli. He was working at the Hub Network, and he was working on a show called Spooksville that a guy named Jim Krieg was the showrunner on, and uh, he gave me the notes. A little while later, I got hired to work on those webisodes for Spooksville. Later on, Jim Krieg hired me to work on a show called Legend Quest for Netflix and a show called Justice League Action for Warner Brothers in DC. And that was how my career in animation started um you know which then there's a lot of other little pieces along the way that's the really easy quick short version of it um and there's a lot of other weird parts to the story too i mean um you know so uh but hollywood is a is a, is a wild thing so that's how i that's how i came to to do what i do and i've been very fortunate in that i've gotten to work on ip that is stuff that i grew up with that i have loved my whole life and um and you know and and gotten to sort of lend my voice to and and you know I, I can't believe that i got to work on a on a transformer show that was rooted in g1 mythology and i can't believe that i got to work on a, a he-man show that was a love letter in so many ways to the classic era you know of 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 motu not just you know for, on tv but the toys and the mini comics and you know we we tried to sort of pull from from everything we could and 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 distill it into something that, that we really enjoyed and, and hope that the fans would like to. Do you have a favorite medium you prefer to work in above all others? Large. No. Um I <laughs> large. Um I uh I I will say I mean I like love what I do. Um I've I don't know. It's hard to say a favorite. I, I like the satisfaction I get when I work on a movie like Long Halloween one and two and Man of Tomorrow and Reign of the Supermen. Um, because that it's a it's it's just me. I'm a guy who prefers sitting alone in my office in front of a blank screen with a keyboard. And that's a rarity among Hollywood writers. A lot of people really like to get in a room together and and I do love that. I do love part of the process, getting in a room and talking through story together. But when the rubber hits the road is when I'm sitting alone in my office in front of a blank screen and and then my imagination, I just have to open up my imagination and and, and figure things out. Um, but, but the movie process is so much more isolated and 
I like having, I like being a, an isolated loner uh, working on things sometimes. So, uh, so I, I, I prefer, I like that. Masters of the Universe and like Transformers, I mean, like we had, we didn't have full on writer's rooms for those shows, but we did have like a short, a shortened version of that where we met a, we met a bunch of times like in on Masters, we met in Kevin's living room and, you know, we sat around in a circle and broke story, you know, on the on the show based on the the story treatment for the season that Kevin had written, uh, you know, in conjunction with the stuff that, that Teddy and Rob, Rob David had, you know, sort of concocted with Kevin. So then we all came in as writers and, and, and helped sort of bring all that to life and challenge it, poke holes in it, figure out how to make it better. And, you know, that's kind of the process. That's how it works. You know, when you do that, you like to have a lot of time to do it. Sometimes you don't. In animation, sometimes it's 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 the writing phase is like, hurry up, hurry up, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then the production phase lasts two years, <laughs> you know, where they're they're animating it for two years. And then it's like, we really rushed hard to get that thing done. But, you know, the nature of animation is that it's going to take a couple of years before you see it. So, you know, I think about like Long Halloween. I think I wrote Long Halloween 1 in 2017. You know, and it came out last year. Yeah. So wow. several years before it saw the light of day. <laughs> so, you know. The weird We're business. Weird, but I would I would love to work in live action where I would see the product sooner than waiting for the animation process to be done. And also because I think I would I think I'd do well in live action because I again I, I really thrive on writing scenes about you know two people sitting in a room talking and coming to terms with things. You know, like that's yeah. that's my and that's in TV is the money. It's literally the money. Yeah. If you can write good, interesting, dramatic scenes between two people in a room with that they don't move and they're in a static shot, it's the cheapest thing they can shoot, and so it saves them a lot of money on all the big action scenes they got to do in Act Three, you know. And all. Yeah. So, so if you can if you can do that in live action, then you're 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 better off. I I have not yet made my way over there, so maybe maybe I will. You know, before Colt takes us over to Motu, we did see that acting credit on your resume. Um, two movies, I think it was. Oh, well, that's where, that was me doing favors for friends back in the day. That's the thing that you do. And the only real acting jobs I ever got paid to do were TV commercials. And you don't get credits for those. Uh, <laughs> would be anything we know? What's the product? I mean, probably, you know, I mean, maybe. And they're not so big that you'd remember them. They might be, uh, you might be like, I think I remember that, you know, like I did one for uh, the first one I ever did. Oh, the first one I ever did, I, I got cut out of. So I, it got me into the union, but I didn't end up in the commercial, um, which was for the guy who uh, went on to direct, he directed the commercial. He went on to Craig Gillespie. He went on to direct uh, Fright Night, the remake, and a movie called Lars and the Real Girl, which was great. And he's the mind behind that show Physical on Apple right now which is, I think, terrific. Um, and he, he cast me in my, he got me into the Screen Actors Guild back in the day when I needed to be in that thing. Um, so I did that one. That was for Diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, the second one I ever booked was for Sharpie, I think. Sharpie Markers. And it was oh. me and David Beckham. Uh, I, oh, I, did wow. a, I did a scene with David Beckham. You, we weren't, we weren't, you couldn't hear us talking. So it was just, uh, it had music under it. 
but I was getting, I was a guy in the supermarket getting him to sign my orange juice. Um, and, uh, and then I did, I did a Verizon commercial and I did a, I, the last one I ever did was for Napa auto parts. And it was, uh, uh, it was, a, it was, it was probably good that it was, it, it would have been the last one I ever did. Even if it, even if my writing career wasn't taking off, it would have been the last one I did anyway, because what they didn't tell me, I booked the commercial and what they didn't tell me was when I got to set, they had five incredibly high powered air cannons pointed at my face and they just packed them full of mud and dirt and walnut dust, which is a thing. And the, the, the shot was, I was a guy standing with his wife in my yard and there was a guy doing donuts with his truck <laughs> in my yard and splattering mud everywhere. And the mud splatters all over us. Well, in order for it to look cool, they had to shoot it out of these five high-powered cannons at close range. They hadn't told us that this was happening. <laughs> they also didn't ask if we were had a nut allergy and they were firing a walnut. Oh, man. Thankfully, <laughs> um, we didn't. Um, and uh, so I just, it was like, take after take. And like, take and then have to go change and shower and come back and yeah. do it again and do it again and do it again. And, and at the end of the commercial, I'm like, you know, all proud. I'm like, get in the pool. Uh, <laughs> digging a hole for the pool. Anyway, these are my illustrious acting credits. <laughs> you got to put these on YouTube. Yeah. That's right. yeah. You also well, think doing stuff that are kind of favors for friends. And, and uh, yeah. so I, I did a couple of sort of walk on things and a couple of little, little movies back in the day, but, uh, you know, I never, never broke through, never could make it work. I couldn't even make it work in the theater and I was a theater actor. So, but, you know, I honestly, I have to tell you, I think all of that led me to where I am now. And, and it pointed me in the direction I was going. And, uh, and, and I think that it not only made me a better storyteller, but it made me really tenacious about how the business works. And, you know, I could understand how to have a career as a writer. Couldn't understand how actors have careers. And let me say, I love actors and more power to them. And I am, they are magical creatures to me, not because of what they do to bring a character to life, because I know how that works, right? I studied that, like I get that. It's how they are able to have a successful career in Hollywood. To me, that is the actual real magic. Like they, it's, it's, a, it's incredibly difficult. And, yeah. and, and they are special, special people <laughs> for having figured it out. Wow. Well, I think my wife would be jealous that you got to star in something with David Beckham. That's her. I know. He was so athlete, nice. Athlete crush. He yeah. was so nice. Like we, he was the yeah. nicest guy. He was the only guy I knew on set. Like too, like I would I'd talk to him between takes and hang out with him because I didn't know anybody else there. I, I didn't know him before, but he was just so nice that. Yeah. Know, I, I was That's blown amazing. away. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, get back into the. Here's a, sorry, go here's ahead. A weird tidbit: We shot that commercial on the WB Ranch, which is it literally steps away from where I worked on my first ever animated show, Justice League Action, which Warner Brothers Animation was headquartered there at the Warner Ranch. So when I came back, when I came to my first meeting on the on the ranch for animation, I was like, oh my gosh, this is where wow. David Beckham and I were hanging out, you know. <laughs> Weird. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, when it, you know, going back to, to Motu stuff, this is a question that will, you know, we 
we've talked about AJ and I, um, and we'll be asking our guests, you know, this question, but what, uh, you talked a little bit about it before, but what is your, your experience and your personal history with, with masters of the universe? I mean, like, like most kids of the eighties, I, you know, it was inescapable as a, as a, you know, it was part of the zeitgeist. Um, you know, I, I just, I wasn't the kid who, when the mall tour came around with songster, you know, was like, I have to go, you know, like I, I wasn't that kid um, because I was focused on Transformers and GI Joe. But, uh, and, and the other thing was, what sucked is like my friends weren't He-Man fans. Like I, they were all Transformers kids too. So I don't know. It was like one of those things where it just wasn't always, I mean, I watched the, I watched the filmation show. Like that was, that was the biggest exposure I had to He-Man as a kid. I watched and loved the filmation show. Um, and, and then kind of moved away from it. I mean, I, like as a kid, by the way, the toys, I think I had, I had He-Man. I didn't have Skeletor. Um, I had uh, Beastman. Um, and, oh God, I don't even, I don't even remember as a kid because it, it was, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't who I was, you know? Um, and then, and I, when I grew up, it was, uh, when the, the 2000 X show happened, then I was all in, I collected, figures, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know, just glued to the, to the TV. Cause I think, I don't know, I, by then something about it, it, I grew up with it and it, it felt like it grew up with me and, um, and I, I was, I don't know, I was more, more ready for it. But, um, but I think watching the filmation show as a kid was a really good foundation for going into Revelation. Cause I think that the, there's, I don't know, like, are there, are there Motu fans who love the toys and love them as a kid, but weren't into the show? I don't think so. I think nah. I think the show was kind of your way in, in a big way. Um, so it's hard it's hard to imagine a Motu fan that doesn't love that show. Yeah, yeah, and also, and 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 what's great about it is loves it. We love it unconditionally because <laughs> by and by any standard, you know, like an animation or production, or, you know, filmation was known for you know, being very thrifty, let's say, yeah. how they, yeah. they made what they made. Um, but we see, we just, we, as a kid, you didn't notice it. And, and as I think, you know, now, if you had, if you didn't watch it as a kid, you'd look at it now and go, that's cheap. Why would they do that? And I think we still see, I still see past all that. Because um, that show, more than any show, was about story. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of world building and uh, a lot of charm to it. And actually, as a kid myself, I noticed the repeat animations. I actually look forward to them. I couldn't wait. <laughs> no, I couldn't wait. Really we that we do. And like I talk about, like, like I know there are there are people who grew up on like Power Rangers who watched Power Rangers yeah. because of the Megazord sequence or the Zord sequence, you know, which came in every episode. 
and it was the same sequence and they just replayed the same thing. It's like when He-Man, you know, uh, calls down the power, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're seeing usually the same thing and every time it's exciting, every time. Well, and it's a little bit of that comfort feeling too. Like it's, you know, it's something that you, you remember as a kid. It's that it has that nostalgia link to it, but it also just makes you feel happy and you feel comfortable with it. The so way I can we, see why people are drawn to that. I think the way we achieve that, like, I don't think we did that visually, like where we just repeat the same sequence in Revelation, but it's Bear McCreary's music yes, that yeah. takes you there and carries you through and it feels familiar and you know you know what's coming and then when it's coming you, you're excited about it I, yeah. that guy is a huge motu fan and it, he uh i can't believe we got him to score that show and he's uh he's a wonderful guy and um and incredibly talented so and it, i just that the score for that for revelation is unreal it's unreal I think I forever messed up my Spotify algorithm because I just listened to that score so many times. <laughs> so now I, I just get that and then I get, get bears God of war soundtrack from 2018. Those are the, that's just what keeps coming up for me. <laughs> I remember getting a sneak listen at the transformation sequence. And I was just like, it's goosebumps. You, yeah. you just knew that that would, that was that if nothing else worked, you know, that, that was going to work. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's one of those scores that really elevates the material and the material is already fantastic i mean you're guys writing the animation but it's something like jaws or predator or star wars i mean when it's that good it just notches it up a little bit higher and it's just you know, it's like it's like when I, what i was saying about the the uh the 2000 show which is we we kind of came at it. First of all, I was a guy who had his marching orders from the producers, which were, you know, Teddy and Rob and 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 my direct report, Kevin Smith, and um, and they the, the you know, what we were told to do was, and I'm sure you've heard us talk about this before, uh, was to 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 up the stakes to to make it feel Shakespearean in scope. To, 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 because that's how we saw it as a kid. Like when it felt like the stakes were so high uh, when we watched it as kids and as an, when you watch it as an adult, when you watch a new series as an adult, you have to grow the, the mythology or, or at least the characterizations to, to, to match that sort of the way you've grown and the way your tastes have grown as, a, as an audience. And, um, and so that was, that was one of the primary things, but so to, 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 to it was to, to make you believe it again and love it. And, um, and, and then, you know, also to, to then have fun with it, which is, I have to say the biggest Kevin Smith brought so much to the table for this show, things that people don't even will never understand. The amount of work he's put in is more work than any showrunner in animation I've, I think I've ever worked with in terms of his involvement day to day on the show. One of the big things he was constantly bringing to the show was returning to a sense of fun and adventure, 
where people like Eric Carrasco and I can get really excited to dig into like to ripping somebody's heart out, you know, and, and you know, really making them bleed right there on the screen and, you know, advancing their character through suffering. You know, we, we can, we can, we can go there and we'll happily go there um, to have a Kevin Smith guiding us back to, okay, but let's find the fun in this. Let's remember, you know, let's remember that one of the things we love about he-Man and Masters of the Universe is the occasional funny gag or joke, you know, which he's terrific at, Kevin. And so, um, you know, so so to sort of temper it and to remind you of of the stuff that you grew up with was was on the was on the menu for us too. Um, but the guy who was doing all that was the guy who was monitoring and managing all that is is Kevin. You know, and, and Rob and Teddy too, but you know, Kevin was the guy boots on the ground, you know. So you're talking about how Kevin Smith was so essential. Um, is it correct yeah. to say that he wrote the story framework in Masters of the Universe Revelation and then the writers um such as yourself fleshed it out? Was that the process? I mean, yeah. So so I think that uh so the way and I think the way he would say it too, and I think this is true, is that Rob and Teddy came to Kevin and had some ideas about what they would like to see. And then he pitched them. He created a story and pitched it to them. And then they, um, they, I think worked on that. I think worked on it together, like in terms of talking through it. And then once he had a solid foundation for that, they brought in the writing team and we all sat with Kevin and Rob and Teddy were there in the beginning and Rob was there for the whole process of the writing room, writer's room. Um, and we came at it in terms of breaking story, breaking out each of the episodes, which, which, which pieces of the story they were talking about made sense for which episode. And I think it was after the first meeting we had where we talked about the broad strokes and we offered a little bit, I think, uh, of, of sort of, you know, sort of ideas and, and where we would go with it. I think it was then that Kevin went off and wrote, I mean, maybe this, maybe I'm wrong, but I think he went off, like we left him in the evening on a, like a Monday night or something. And then like he went off and wrote a, a, a I don't know, 15 to 30 page somewhere, some big document which broke out the story episode by episode, like an, in a narrative sort of outline. And, and he had it, he wrote it in a day. He wrote it overnight. Like it was, we had it, we had a document to work with the next day. And it was really good. It was so good that as writers, we were like, what is this? What have you done? What, is, <laughs> what kind of magical powers do you have, Kevin? That this you were able to do this in like one night, and uh, and he's just that he's a he's just when he's inspired and full of you know uh, excitement to work on a thing, it, it's the next thing he has to do. I think, and I think there's a lot of people like that, and he's a good example of it. And then then we all worked on sort of refining that, and but but that was our north star through the process was that that document kept bringing us back to where we where we needed to go, what we needed to do. Then so, it time to decide who was going to write which episode because we all worked on 
like talking through breaking them together. And then it was, you know, Kevin was just like, hey, who wants to write which episode? And, you know, I, I loved them all. <laughs> and I could not figure out what to say. And this was only regarding the first five episodes at this point, I think. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't know. I'll do whichever one nobody else wants to do. And, <laughs> and then everybody else chose. And the last one left was uh, episode four, uh, which ended up being titled Land of the Dead. And, and I was so relieved because it's the episode that I think they, I'm pretty sure that they chose episodes because like the way they did, because they knew I really wanted to write that one, but I was kind of, <laughs> you're trying to be um, polite. Yeah. But wow. I also would have been happy writing any of them, but I, 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 there's something about evil in for me. There's something about evil in that calls to me. And there's something about Orca. These are probably the two characters I identify with more than any characters in Masters of the Universe. And um, I think the Scareglow part of it was scary uh, because mm -hmm. he hadn't been depicted on screen before. So there's a little bit of scariness and trepidation for me on that front. But um, but there's also, it's kind of freeing because, it, you know, there was really nothing to compare it to. So I could, I could sort of do my version of Scareglow. And by the way, when I say my version, when I say my version, I mean the version that I that we came up with as a team, and then I scripted, but Kevin, you know, got into helping, you know, massage and make into the voice for the show, and then also that Lena Headey, Tony Todd, and Griffin Newman brought to the table, and. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I was working, I was writing that episode the day that I heard that we got Lena Headey to play Eva Lynn. And the second I heard that, I went in and erased all the dialogue I had written for Eva Lynn and rewrote all of it right then on the spot and upped the chewiness of the words, the Shakespearean uh, yeah, yeah. language of it, because I knew she could handle it. And mm -hmm. it, and she is so much more interesting of a character when I think when she's, when you know she speaks with a certain class, but then when she doesn't, when she yeah. talks to you on a on the ground level, it's important. It's more important than when she's maybe talking up here. <laughs> and yeah. so there's just, and I knew from, just from watching things like Game of Thrones, or um, I first knew her from the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, I knew that that is an actor who could handle that kind of stuff and could do it and do it way better than I was even writing it. And I am, I've never been happier to be proven exactly right. She uh, just brought everything and more to every word we put on the page for Evil Lynn. And the same is true for Tony Todd, who I had worked with. He played Darkseid in my Reign of the Superman movie. Yeah. And um, and he is just Tony Todd. I mean, he's incredible. Um, the whole cast we had was embarrassingly good. Um, mm -hmm. And Griffin Newman bringing so much heart and vulnerability to, a, to an Orco that we really wanted to bring some heart and vulnerability to, knowing 
what we were doing with that character, specifically in that episode, episode four, you know, spoiler alert. At the end of that episode. And yeah. um, I'm getting a little teary right now talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Griffin it made you love him and believe in him in a way that when he's saying in the end, when he's saying, look, Lynn, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You know, I'm getting choked up talking about it because that's Griffin. Griffin made you love him and believe in him in a way that Eva Lynn loves him and believes in him in that moment. You know, mm -hmm. so, <laughs> isn't this well, stupid? I, I, I want to these guys. Oh no, no, no! I want to share with you my uh, my youngest son has always loved Orko. Has just been drawn to him, and he's he's eleven years old now. He was eleven when when the show aired, and no, he was ten when the show aired. And when he mm -hmm. saw Orko's treatment and just how Orko goes out and how he finds his confidence and his bravery, that was something that my son was specifically struggling with at that time was being confident in himself, you know, as all kids do. And as a parent trying to find ways to build them up, he found that in Orko, in Revelation specifically. And he was just, it was an amazing <laughs> moment for him. And so oh, as a father, I want to thank you for those kind of moments. Because oh, it was beautiful. I mean, listen, you thank the whole team and and Griffin and Lena and everybody. I mean, that that the, there was there was so much emotion in that. And we knew what we wanted to we it was gonna be hard to pull off because we yeah. we didn't spend a lot of time with Orco. And um and because of the nature of the story we were telling about the death of magic and, and things like that, we we felt that it would make sense to, to, to go down that road. We knew, and again, more spoilers, we knew what we were ultimately going to do with Orca. Um, but that didn't, you know, our knowledge about that, we didn't let that, you know, taint how we dealt with that moment. And we tried to treat it with as much care as we could for people who do, do, do believe in that character and see themselves in that character, like me, and you know, like you know, your your son. Like I, I think that that um, that one of the things from the old classic era that you didn't see in the same way uh, in our show was, you know, were the morals delivered at the end of the episode. Yeah. And those were great. They were done in a certain time when th that was something that, you know, was necessary to do and in a, in a show like that. And, um, but, but that's part of the DNA of, of Motu for, at least for the, the people who worked on Revelation, the idea of there being a, a sort of lesson in, in the adventures and the things that these characters are, are going through. And there was a, for us, there was a real lesson in in Orko's story, particularly in, in that episode. And then there's a greater lesson that comes to, into play later. And that we hoped that people would take away from it, you know, about believing in yourself and not, you know, and learning how to, to deal with the voices that made you feel like you couldn't when maybe you could. Um, and then finding strength in surprising places, like with from Evil Lynn, you know, which yeah. nobody would expect necessarily that Orko would. Um, that stuff is 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 part of I think how you tell a Masters of the Universe story is what Kevin thinks I think about how you 
tell a, a mochi story and and um we we try to always keep that in mind yeah I can see all the advantages of your team sport writing, um, all the support and um, the com camaraderie, but is there any disadvantages at all? What happens if um, there's like a big dis disagreement in the room? I mean, I mean, look, here's the thing about how writers rooms work. I mean, we're all professionals. Yeah, okay. We do this. We do this. I mean, we, there's, there are places where people could act less professional and, it could come to fisticuffs, uh, I suppose. <laughs> I was suggesting that. <laughs> I, I suppose that can happen, but that that's never been in any room I've ever been in, because you know when you come at something, you know. I mean, we talked about a little bit about this before we started the uh, the the you know recording when I was talking to you guys earlier today. Uh, I you guys were very kind to reschedule when we were recording this, and. Um, and I was just so I'm so appreciative that you were able to juggle your your schedule to do that because to accommodate my changing schedule. And you made a comment about how it was, you know, I seemed that it was so nice of me to to be so grateful and thankful. And I just feel like that's what when you're a professional, when you act like a professional, people will treat you like a professional. When you treat other people like professionals, they treat you like one. And I think that's a thing you learn in the writer's room. And so, you know, you disagree all the time on stuff in the room. But one of the rules that I live by that I learned from my mentors was twice. You get twice. You pitch it twice. You, you pitch it the first time. And if it doesn't land, you pitch it a second time. And if it still doesn't land, it's done. And you move on. And because there's always a better idea. There's always a better line. There's always. It, we could sit there forever and write the greatest Masters of the Universe show that ever existed. And it would never make it to the screen because we'd be spending every day of our lives just in the writer's room writing. And it would be getting better and better and better all the time. But at some point, you have to stop and actually make a thing. Um, and that's that's the disadvantage of, I guess, of anything in entertainment. Um, you know, the, the purest artistic expression would just never be expressed. It would just be something you're constantly working on for the rest of your life. Um, uh, but so, so there are, there are, I think only the only disadvantage to the, the process of creating things in the way that we create them for television is like, you know, it, it's a personal stubbornness where it's like, oh, I wrote a really good line of dialogue, but because of this, because they changed the way the scene works, that line of dialogue went away or this moment that I really loved is gone now and it's not in the show. And then you get frustrated. So you're, and it can be frustrating when you're a writer and you're not in on the full production process because you will, you get surprised by that at the end. You see the show and you're like, but wait, what about when he did blank, blank, blank? And, uh, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know why. And you can tell in the edit why. Let me tell you about the great advantage, though. One of the great, I've told the talk a little bit about the advantages, but one of the big advantages, and specifically, specifically related to the, the episode we've been talking about and the moments we've been talking about. Is and I knew I knew Eric Carrasco before going into Masters of the Universe. We were friends and we had worked together before. And uh, in fact, today that we're recording this is Eric Carrasco's birthday. By the way, happy birthday, Eric! Um, happy birthday, Eric! <laughs> um, but uh, he was the one who read my first draft of episode four when. Uh, it, it had a, a, a different title originally that gave away too much. Um, Fall of the Sparrow, right? Fall of a Sparrow, which yeah. we I think 
told you what was going to happen, I think, to Orko a little bit too, too, too clearly. Um, he read it, and it was missing something. And he gave a lot of great notes. But the biggest note he gave me that I immediately took, and he was absolutely right, was he said, I, what this is missing is a, a, a little speech, something from Orko to make us love him again. You have to have him give a little speech and something that is tells us about who he is and why we should love him. And I said, oh my God, I can't believe it. I didn't have that in there in the first draft. And it and it turned into the speech um, at the uh, spell spring, or I think it's outside the spell spring. Or no, it's it's right before the 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 shadow uh, beasts. Um, and where he talks about, you know, how his his real name is Oracle, but he, you know, he's little, he couldn't pronounce the word Oracle and Orco was what he could say. And so that stuck. And, um, and he talked about his parents and he talked about his family. He talked about not being good at anything and, and how he felt about that or a little bit. And we actually saw more of how evil Lynn felt about what he was saying maybe than what he felt about it, but we got what he was feeling through what she was feeling. Anyway, that little speech he gives, it sets up everything, I think, for what you feel about him when he has his moment of triumph in the end. And that was because Eric Carrasco gave me a note and said, hey, you don't forget to put this in. And man, like, thank goodness for him. Because I think the whole, Orko's whole story in that episode hinges on that little speech now. Um, it needed it. And he was right. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. In in terms of, of writing, when you're writing for, you know, you've worked with DC, you've worked with with these big franchises. When you're working for something like Motu, are there how how do you stick to the rules within that universe, like the canon? Are there any absolute no's that First you can't all, do? Are there must-haves that you have to? This guy is literally on my desk in reach, not just for this. It's always sitting here. Um, which I carried with me into the first writer's meeting that we had. Because look, let's be frank. Like, there are people, there are fans who probably know better than this, who know the everything inside and out even better than this book. <laughs> but I was not one of them. And, and I knew a lot, but there were going to be things that came up that I was just like, okay, I need to get a quick crash course and what are we talking about right now? Because I don't remember that episode and I don't remember that comic or that thing. And um, and so first and foremost, having a reference guide like this was very handy for me <laughs> um, in, the, in the beginning. Um, but the other big advantage we had in the writer's room was that Rob David was in the room with us the whole time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Teddy was there the first meeting we had and then they, he came back later for other meetings, but he's a big fancy Netflix executive, so he couldn't be there all the time. But, <laughs> but, but he was throughout the process, engaged throughout the whole process, but he couldn't sit in the room with us. But Rob made the time to come and sit in the room with us when we broke the story. Now, let me tell you, if you don't know, Rob David is not just the guy who is the, you know, creative soul of Masters of the Universe at Mattel right now, but, and Mattel Television, but he is also a lifelong fan and a guy who is a creator who wrote Motu comics. And he, he, he is a walking 
Rolodex in the way that Teddy is also a, a walking Rolodex of what what is not only what you need to know to 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 do this, but also you know what might be fun. What's a thing that we're not thinking of because we're not thinking of a an obscure character that nobody's going to remember that appeared in one thing once or something. And it, boy, if we do a cameo for that character, that might be a real Easter egg and a fun thing to the fans. Or we can even that it could even evolve into something bigger. Um, so he was there as creative, constant creative input and feedback, and then also as sort of those 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 bumpers the 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 guides for us to know sort of when we were going too far what what felt that that's not that's not motu that's more motu and um and 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 then that's in the first part of the process then when we go through the notes process teddy's reading everything and he's also involved in it as well and by the way they're not the only people i mean the fans there are fans at powerhouse animation who who produced you know who made the thing who are big fans who also you know can sort of have a a, a, a lexicon available to them and a, and a, a glossary and a, and a you know a whole a rolodex of information so the, it was kind of like I, I just felt safe we all felt safe the whole time um uh that we we weren't going to do anything that was so wildly outrageously not masters of the universe you know, because that's not like somebody could have come in and said, I want to reinvent Masters of the Universe. Let's go. Ahead. Let's come at this from a completely different angle. He-Man's gone. Let's do something else. Like there could have that's that happens in Hollywood all the time. That's not sure. who those guys are. That's not who those guys are. Those guys came in and said, this needs to be Masters of the Universe. And it needs to feel like a continuation of a thing that you've loved your whole life and another piece of of the lore. And um, and they were there to constantly to help us with that. It, it helped that we were all fans in our own right, even if we weren't necessarily the uber fans that Rob and Teddy are. Um, you know, we we still came to it with all, all we all had different degrees of love for E-Man. You know, Kevin got a lot of grief for people were talking about like him saying he wasn't a He-Man fan growing up. Like right. he was. Like the thing is he was and like because he offhandedly said something at one point in a interview like I have I I'm sure I have said the same thing because to me when I think of being a fan I think of the people like Rob and Teddy who grew up living and sleeping and eating and breathing master of the universe whereas I was doing that with transformers you know like if you asked me what I was a fan of as a kid I'd say transformers and then I'd say batman probably after that but I, I, you know, so I don't know. I, I think people wanted to throw a gotcha at Kevin, but yeah, I know yeah. the guy, and he he was a, a fan of. He's a fan of so much pop culture stuff that um, of things that exist, and certainly in things in eighties that we all grew up on. And so and I can understand level of understanding can, and excitement about it. I can understand at Kevin's age too. I mean, I think he was 13 years old when the filmation show came out. I think he's mentioned before that he initially found it a little corny and a little goofy. He would watch it. But, um, and when you're 13, you're reaching for, for more at that point, right? More adult fare and content. But also how we saw it when we were kids is different than like, it hasn't left us. Master of the universe has been with us all these many years and that's a guy that's at every single Comic-Con 
every single yeah. pop culture event, he is constantly surrounded by Masters of the Universe, and he, <laughs> yeah. he knows he knows it. <laughs> he knows yeah. it, and he has a love for it that has, I think, I would say, like all of us, hugely deepened through the process of creating. Yeah, it, you know, and um, and that's that's been wonderful. And I think that's one of the unfortunate things that I'm happy that you guys are able to endure is when people try to take things out of context from what was said and try to use them as gotcha moments to prove some type of point. People, you know, so. you listen, that's the business. Like we're used to that stuff. Like people, yeah. people are there. That's their, that's what they do though. Like that's how they make a buck. A lot of these like, mm -hmm. you know, website, social media things. I mean, they, they, that's, they're doing what they have to do to try to get people to click on their stuff, which is how they make a living. And I would never deny people, you know, their right to make a living, like go do what you have to do. I just think as consumers, as fans, it's, it's important for us to know the source and understand yeah. the source and what their motivations are. Yes. And, um, and you know, maybe not glom on so quick. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's easy to sort of glom on real fast and you know, hoard, hoard mentality instead of herd mentality. Yeah. I want hoard mentality for, for you guys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think some of that happened. I think some people got it in their heads. You know, they listened to the wrong people in the beginning and then they went and watched the show and they're like, oh, I like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they were expecting it to a chance. Horrible. And they were like, oh, wait, this is good. And what was funny was the number of people who watched, they watched the first, I, look, I wish we dropped all 10 episodes at once. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who watched the first five and thought, wow, this is ridiculous because, you know, <laughs> now it's, you know, how, how could you possibly come back from this? And then they watched the back five and they thought, well, they listened, they listened to our criticisms and they made changes. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. I love you, but no, no. <laughs> It works. Like we literally couldn't do that. It was in the can. It was done. Like it would be too expensive to do that. We, we were just we talking about this in the previous podcast where there are people <laughs> yeah. that believe Andra was the new He-Man. Yeah. And between the time where episode uh, part one uh, dropped and then part two launched, that you guys changed the script. You know, reshot re <laughs> the or re-recorded the dialogue. And actually made Adam come back as He-Man as damage control. And we're like, yeah. Are you kidding me? It's a I mean, wonderful, I'm... fanciful story. And I encourage those people to become writers because that's yeah. really imaginative. And we could use imaginative people in the business, but um, that's just not how the process works. It's not possible. It was those episodes were all finished. Uh, the only thing that that after the first five dropped, I think the only thing that was remaining on the agenda was they were being localized which is where they they uh they put on like the regional dubbing for different <laughs> countries languages and subtitles and stuff like that like that was what wasn't done yet on the back five by the time the first five were done so yeah. i mean look if you can prove to me that like in sri lanka the 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 the, the words on the screen don't match what they're saying because we we changed it to make you happy, you know. <laughs> I, I would be surprised because we didn't, but uh, something probably just got lost in translation. Um, but yeah, it's you know, what are you gonna do? Like I said, people gotta make a living, and yeah. you know, 
get out there and do it. I just wish that th that they would be, you know, that they would admit when they were wrong, <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then and then maybe they could find a way to make a living by supporting something instead of trying to drag it down. But hey, you got to do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, go ahead, Colt. Yeah. Um, so, just real quickly, out of the out of the three episodes you wrote, you wrote episode four, and you wrote episode seven and episode nine. Mm -hmm. Do you which which one of those episodes would you say is your favorite? I know it's like picking a child, your favorite child, but yeah, I mean, I have no problem answering this question. My favorite is episode four, uh, but but it's because. Look, there's could be a million reasons. It's the first one I did. It's the first time I got to play with the toys in that way. Um, and that's, you know, you never forget your first time. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, it was, it, and for me, I felt like a lot of stuff came together. Seven and nine were a little bit more difficult in terms of the process because there were like seven, there, you know, there was just, there was a lot of stuff we had to, there was a there were you know there was a lot of um there was a lot of the way those stories were weaved together in the back five there was a lot of kind of going back and forth and and figuring out the best way to to do the thing and some of that came late in the process while we were revising the script and and um you know at one point they asked me to turn in a really in, like wildly short script and I kept saying, ooh, I don't think we can do all this in that many pages. Like, we have to do a normal set. And their concern was about whether we would be able to satisfy all, have all the action that we needed in, in that, you know. And it's a, it's a proper concern. Um, but that can limit sort of what you do in terms of dialogue. Um, so um, there, were, there were things, there were a lot of bugs we were ironing out, I think, in, in the, in the, when, we, when we were working more on the back five there was no real lull like i mean we we wrote we came up with the first five and then we came together and figured out the back five and it all happened in sequence but um but i don't know maybe there was just something about the way four came together for me and maybe ultimately in the end it's because i feel like it's the most like um a classic motu story in that the heroes are that go off on the heroes are off on a quest. They meet a villain who upends the whole thing, separates them, you know, and they have to dig down and learn a lesson about like their fear and 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 overcome that fear in order to solve the thing that they're up against and get to where they need to get to next. And that just felt so much like the, I mean, maybe you can say that that's the story of every one of the episodes, but I, I feel like that really gelled in that episode for me. And, and so I, I really, I mean, I just, I love it. And then it's just the Orko and Evil Lynn of it. Just like I say, getting to play with the toys and getting to put those two toys together, like they are on my shelf right now, yeah. getting to put those two toys together and just to see what happens, it was the most fun I think I had on the show at all, you know, just, just for the, like, let me just put them together and see what happens was, was, was what that was all about. 
That's and awesome. I love the I love the voiceover you did with Tila and everyone was conquering their fears and you're, you they go to the satellite shots of everyone else and ah uh, that thing just gives me chills. So when she's using her power, right? She's she's yeah. tapping her power in that moment and literally the power she doesn't understand, but also her strength, you know, just as being a warrior and who she is and what she's learned fighting at the side of Hemet. Um, well, and it, it, you know, it also, to me, it came across as, you know, it was an important moment for her because it was the point where she finally acknowledged that he was important to her and she still remembered him. She still carried him close to her heart. Yeah. Like, that's one of the driving denying, themes of the show. Yeah. She was denying that because she was still angry with him. And, yeah. um, and it was the first thought for her that, uh, that, you know, I, I will tell you originally she came up against a, not only a spectral He-Man, but she came up against a spectral man-at-arms. Mm -hmm. And um, and then also she came across came came up against Spectral Tila as well. And so it was there was a there was another beat to that. And it was it, you know she was exploring the anger she felt toward Adam and toward Duncan and, yeah. and then also toward herself. And, and and how that anger was birthed out of fear, really. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, to me, that's what the idea was. The idea of taking what is on the surface a very classic Motu adventure and then letting it grow up with us as an audience and as storytellers and, and doing the same kind of adventure. But now the stakes just feel very grown up and... Um, and then it gets proven out with Orko's sacrifice, where it's just, you know, the worst possible uh, consequence happens, which we would have never seen in, yeah. in any previous incarnation of Masters of the Universe. So I know, I know your strength or your, your love is to write dialogue, but that amazing, in the next episode, that amazing Skelegod versus Savage He-Man fight, <laughs> how much of that epic fight was scripted versus just positioned as um, fighty fight? and handled by the directors and powerhouse. Okay, so here's where you're gonna learn a little something about me and the fighty fight thing, okay. which is everybody got really happy when, I think I came in, when I came in, I think arguably I probably had the most experience as an animation writer. Like everybody else had like incredible resumes behind them of tons of amazing things, but I think I had written more animation than, the, than everybody else at that point. And and I and they were like, oh wow, they Powerhouse says we don't need to choreograph the fights. Let's just we can just write when when a fight's gonna happen, we can just write fighty fight into the script. And then that saves us from having to choreograph it. Because ultimately, and this is the way it works in animation, is ultimately the story artists will come in and they could just throw out the choreography you do and come up with something way better. And they often do, by the way. Yeah. Um uh but for, for me, I just know from experience that if you just write fighty fight, it's going to change your page count for your script because now, <laughs> now all the stuff that needs to be described and explained in the script, you know, for a fight is not there. And also the big problem, and I told everybody this in the beginning, I was like, the biggest problem we're going to have is that you end up with these beautiful fights that are like kind of anime fights where 
everybody's fighting and nobody's saying anything. And it's cool, but it also feels a little jarring because no, there's no advancement of the narrative through dialogue happening. And so I kind of fought against the idea of just writing in fighty fight. So if you look at my scripts, like I'll write in fighty fight and then I will also choreograph stuff, you know? <laughs> and, and my my excuse was, well, I need to write in this choreography because I need to explain this line of dialogue I'm putting in for the middle of the fight. Then then this line of dialogue that they reply with and then this, you know? So I kind of fought that a little bit. <laughs> um, happily, to go back to your your question though, how much of that incredible Skele God Savage He-Man fight was scripted by me? Probably zero. Like, like I think I scripted stuff. And I if I pull up the script, I, you know, you'd look at it, you'd be like, yeah, this isn't exactly what happens. What what's on this page, what happens is like a million times cooler because that's what the story artists and the directors like Patrick and Adam, you know, bring to the table. Um, they're so visual and so good at this. They've been doing this for a long time. And um, and so they happily, they saved my butt. But the good news is that a lot of that dialogue I wrote for the middle of the fight gets in uh, and gets recorded at least. And then you can see if we need it to be able to advance the story. So, so I would say probably very little of it is word for word what I wrote, but the basic concept of the fight is, is, is what I <laughs> <laughs> and thank, right. God, thank God, because you wouldn't want to see depicted the thing that I wrote. Like it's, <laughs> oh yeah, that's all they do. Like, okay, fine. You know. <laughs> You're probably selling yourself short. But, oh no, uh, I'm worse. Like I will betray the whole thing for, Ooh, my pages are running long. I'm going to cut this incredibly cool, interesting part of the fight out because I would rather have this monologue from this explaining <laughs> what they're feeling in this moment. What, um, what did Kevin call it? Monologues of the universe, I think. Monologues of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, listen, like I said, we grew, grew up. Yeah, grew I loved it. With, with everybody. Yeah. All right, then how about with your script, um, Pig Boy? I believe he only appeared in the episodes that you wrote. So was this fantastic inclusion your idea? Yeah, so I tried to get Songster in. Songster. <laughs> Pride. I think my original, my first draft of nine had Songster in it. Um, oh, no. And that was, I, I, there was some, there was some concern, I think, about whether, not only if we could even use him, <laughs> which I think there was sort of a clearance question, like, how does he, who really owns him? I don't, I don't know. That's always a question with Masters of the Universe stuff, which is why, you know, the whole thing, She-Ra is such a right. complicated thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a question, but I don't, I think if we, I don't know that we really necessarily set out to answer the question. I think it more came down to a matter of, is he really the best? Like, it's kind of like we're just stopping to do sort of a, a real in-joke for a few nerds right here. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that was probably and i and i'm willing to bet that came from rob that note because he's really good at those notes where it's like love this and, it, and i'm totally with you but i feel like maybe we're we're speaking to an audience of three people and we probably <laughs> ought to give something that more people can get excited about and so um it was and I, honestly like it was probably teddy biaselli 
you know, who I talk to all the time. And I think he, he probably said, you know, uh, you know, what about goat man and pig boy, you know, um, uh, I probably, I, I'm willing to bet it was him who suggested goat man and pig boy. Um, you know, either that or I said it and he, you know, but I remember talking to Teddy about it. Either way, he was enthusiastic about Goatman and Pig Boy, who ended up being voiced by none other than Kevin Smith. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just wish uh, Webstore was in your episodes too. And he's my favorite vintage figure. And I was just wish he had a voice, but he had no line of dialogue. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe someday. So you talked a little bit about, you know, when things get cut out and are left on the editing floor. Is there anything that that you wrote that got cut that you oh my wanted God. to stay oh in? Like, obviously, oh, I think you probably oh, wanted it all to stay in. Absolutely is. And I can't tell you what it is. Oh, does that mean we get a uh, solution? I can't tell you what it is because it it relates to certain plot lines in Revolution now. All right, fine. But but it was there was there were scenes that that were at the beginning of episode nine that just really delved into some stuff. <laughs> Talk about two people in a room coming to terms with things. Um, and we had to cut those because we streamlined the way the story was working and and th those scenes needed to go so we could sort of beef up some of the later stuff. And uh, and then, you know, but happily, those those themes and ideas uh, will will make a, a return. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm sorry that I can't tell no, you. Oh, no, that's, I think, that's okay. Um, I think it, it, it wasn't about Beastman liking dominant women, was it? Well, let, 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 see, let, let me tell you, that <laughs> that is something I can talk about. Uh, which was, I was like, I did that. That was in episode four. Mm -hmm. Like I started that and beast boy or beast boy. I've been working on teen Titans. <laughs> <laughs> beast man, beast man. Um, uh, he, um, he, the, the concept that we were pushing, I think this was something Eric Carrasco and I kind of cooked up at one point was that he would, he was somebody who would default to the strongest female voice in the room and follow that voice as, you know, as, as his leader <laughs> and, um, and sort of necessarily being dominated necessarily. Right. But, but that, that was sort of just his, and maybe it was cultural, you know, but it was that, the, that a matriarch was something that, you know, was his default to, 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 to sort of, and it, it made fun out of his relationship with Eva Lynn and, and in episode four, it made a little fun with him and Andra. Um, ultimately, I'm so glad it came out because what we got to in the back five in terms of the development and the relationship between Beastman and Eva Lynn, um, you know, kind of for me rivals the Orko Eva Lynn relationship. I mean, it's, it's, it's some really interesting, solid stuff from everybody on the team. Um, and and, and it, it didn't take up a lot of space in the show, but the couple of scenes that they have together are just, I think, really impactful. 
and um, and they make you f and you know Kevin Michael Richardson's unreal uh, as an actor and he he just makes you feel so many things for Beastman um, and uh, and and tie ties right into to you know the way that Evil Lynn's the way that Orko sees something in Evil Lynn something that not everybody's born evil right um, you know the you're, or, you know, or nobody's born evil, really, is what he's saying. Nobody's born evil. Um, you know, Beastman sees something in, in her, too, still. He sees, he sees, you know, the difference is Beastman sees someone who is strong, but who has been victimized and, and lives with, you know, has a sort of skewed mentality about who she is based on what she perceives as the her victimization and that's what she perceived with orco you know she sees orco that way that he was victimized by his family and that he doesn't see the real strength that he has because of that so it takes beastman to kind of help bring that out in evil in um i am my own um you know is an important important thing that that they share you know uh, by the by the end of the show Okay. So, you know, with that episode with, you know, Orko facing off against Scareglow and ultimately, you know, holding off Scareglow, he has that great line where he tells him to go back to the shadows. And I think we all saw the Tolkien influence there from Lord of the Rings. I didn't were write. There, were, were there any other, I guess, literary sources that you took inspiration from? I, I wish I'd written that, that line into the script. That was dropped in by our brilliant directors who are huge Lord of the Rings nerds. Um, and uh, and it was so evocative and such, it was, it, it connected you to the feeling you felt in Lord of the Rings when you heard mm. that line. And that's exactly the feeling you needed to connect to. So it was super smart on their part. Um, but in terms of literary sources, uh, this this is it right here. <laughs> um, you know, we really, I really just stayed focused on the literature of Masters of the Universe, the lore and the literature of Motu. In terms of the way I wrote, you probably heard Kevin talk about this, but the way I wrote Scareglow's dialogue in episode four was in alternating randomly alternating capitalization and lowercase letters, everything he said, so that it looked ethereal and ghostly on the page. It just didn't look right. Well, that's something I ripped off from the way that uh, that um, the Matt Hatter's dialogue is written uh, in, in Batman comics, specifically in The Long Halloween, which I had yeah. just adapted. So it was very fresh in my mind. And it was so... In on the page in comics, it was so interesting. And you heard a sing-songy weird voice coming out of him when you saw this weird version of how, how the letters were organized. And I thought for the purposes of the script and reading the script, the, the audience is never gonna see that. But the people who need to read the script through the process will see that. And it will give them an idea of what I think the sound of Scareglow is. And, um, and so, you know, it's not like delving into themes of, you know, classic literature, but it is me ripping off from Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale one more time um, <laughs> and uh, taking something that I thought was so, so worked so well when I saw it in, in Long Halloween and then 
putting it uh, in, in the script for this, which Kevin happily, it really, it, it was something he really loved so much that he, he remembers it and, and has talked about it a couple of times about how it, uh, how, how he thinks about now, how, probably how he can rip that off and use it at some point. <laughs> he knew it from Hatter too. But, and so he recognized it when he saw it. Um, but yeah, that, that episode, there's something about that episode, all the voices and everything, like it all came out so much like what I, heard in my head that it's scary wow scary. um by the way can i just tell you i've worked on a lot of other shows since masters of the universe i have recently done some more work on masters of the universe but <laughs> I, the what what was that the recall <laughs> the recall that i have for these episodes and the stuff we're talking about even just down to lines of dialogue and moments and things is not like me I'm normally, I, I've, when I've moved on to another project, I kind of have to clear out some stuff and, and make room for the new thing. And the, it shows you how, what a big, important thing Revelation has been in my life. The fact that it's just always with me. Like I carry all of those beats and those moments with me and those, those, those lines and, and that stuff. And the stuff in, in the other guy's scripts that, that just boggles my mind. I mean, Dia Mishra wrote some stuff that I just, you know, coveted. I wish that I could write like that. Um, and Eric Carrasco was always, you know, just, he's, he's always been, the moment I met Eric Carrasco, I was in a room and he started talking about the thing that we were working on. And I left that meeting and I turned to a friend of mine and I said, we're all going to be working for that guy one day. And, and, uh, and I, by the way, it turned out true. Eric hired me to work, uh, to do some work on a show he was working on. Uh, but, um, <laughs> But I and I still think you know if I'm lucky, I'll work for Eric uh, one of the, again. Um, but uh, I see the stuff that those guys did, and it's, I'll never forget it. I think there's some really good stuff in in Revelation, and um, and for me, it's sort of like when you remember school. You know, you remember the good stuff. You remember the, those great times of your life that you're gonna remember forever. There's sometimes when all the, when the lightning strikes and and everything is in line and it's the celestial apex of shows i've worked on you know and um and yeah i'm just gonna always carry it with me you know i'm gonna test your recall now with a few oh. things See, now i was <laughs> such a that i set that up now I'm gonna... See, no that, you're that gonna was our gotcha question <laughs> <laughs> no you're gonna be fine but um and this involves kevin smith because i was hoping you could delve more into your concept of sorcery versus magic and it was during your um your land of the dead episode commentary with kevin smith and you're beginning to explain how the concept fascinated you um then kevin smith jumped to another topic and i was like shouting at my screen no go back i want to hear tim elaborate so can you elaborate uh, more on this concept of sorcery versus magic uh, uh, absolutely so um so this is great that I set up for you that I went uh, went to drama school because there was a, a I, I did four years of drama school and at the end of it, you know, I felt very accomplished. Excuse me, I felt very accomplished and I you know learned a lot of stuff. I worked on a project with another actor who's a very good friend of mine, and who's a real genius. I mean, this guy is the real deal. Like he's a really great actor, and. Um, and somebody commented on, 
like my, we had, we both auditioned for the same part and I auditioned or my audition versus his audition. And I heard one of the professors in college say, the other guy, John, the other guy's name, John and Tim, they said, Tim, you know, they're both great auditions. Tim is the magician, but John has the magic. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. The distinction between those things are what he wasn't saying was the difference between magic and sorcery. That the the like real magic versus you know tricks and the facade and the da -da 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 -da. <laughs> um, and that stuck with me for many years and I'd never really ex gotten to explore it the concept of you know that that sorcery could be perceived as simple cheap magic or that simple cheap magic could be perceived as sorcery and. Um, and so Evil Lynn's little speech there is, you know, uh, in, you know, was about talking about her, um, it was revealing, you know, her deep love of being who she is deep down, even though she's been through hell and back. And what she was trying to sort of teach Orko in, in that moment is, you know, that, that you're special, we're special, and we can love that we have this special thing about us, and we can still marvel about it. That's what it's to, you know, to, you know, to them, they look at it and it's sorcery, you know, it's 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 academic to other people. But you and I can since you know could still look at it with the wonder that we've always sort of looked at it and see it with for the spectacle that it is and that it's magic and and because of how it makes us feel because we do it i think that was what i was trying to go for was the idea that that sorcery you know magic is one thing but a magician you know makes can make you love magic <laughs> you know there's there's an extra layer of something that they can bring to it um uh, and so i guess what i'm really talking about what i was really talking about was the difference between science and art you know like everybody else would see what they do as science and she sees it as art um and 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 that's what she's hoping that she can inspire orco to 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 see in it instead of seeing it as a, you know, boxes that he has to check because I'm a failure because I can't make this thing happen or these things happen. And I think what she's saying is it's, you know, a little bit like what I was saying to you about, we could make, we could create the greatest Motu story ever in a room if we just were left alone and never had to actually put it on the screen. Um, you know, you can, you can love the creation and the the magic of creation, um, you know, uh, and and not just get hung up on the the momentary failures of execution, which is what Orko's hung up on in that moment. Well, and ultimately that theme plays through to the end when, I mean, that's what pulls Evil in back from the brink, and she sees the magic again in the universe. That's it. That's it. I mean, and that's lovely. That's the thing that I think that. 
I'm, you know, we, I don't know how much we talked about it the first time around. I think it was probably more like it was a line. The way it probably worked was it was a line that I threw in, which I thought sounded cool and was exploring a thing that I'd always been interested in. And then when we got together for the second round and talked about the next episodes, um, I think that concept was something that fueled how the resolution was going to happen. Um, well, I don't really remember talking too much about it back then, but that's also Kevin Smith for you. Like Kevin was there through every step. And I think there are a lot of things that get called back in that show that only happened because he called them back because he remembered them. And he's got, actually, he's got a memory like a steel trap. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't write down notes, which is shocking to me. Um, he remembers everything. Uh, and uh, so he, he would, you know, kind of remember to thread some things back in. And, yeah, it's good, which is what makes great story and great, great television. Um, and I'm so happy that that's where we came to with her was that she got to see the magic of the universe and not the celestial apex up until that point. All that stuff was very much science, uh, you know, and and she was she was not. Uh, it was, so it was the sorcery, you know, the, the dark land or the god, godland we called her back then. I think the dark land is what we ended up with. Um, she had forgotten to see the magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got the impression it was like, um, what can I say? Like an animal, right? That dies in a forest and starts decomposing and you look at the horror of it all. But then when you stand back and look to see that, you know, this is nature that it's feeding, you know, the grass, it's becoming fertilizer. It's, it's giving life. Isn't it funny? You're looking at death and thinking death, but in fact, you're looking at life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way I took that, and uh, I don't. Well, know. That, that was Eric Carrasco and Kevin Smith bringing things around there, and in, in the finale, I think that was. I wish I could take credit for that stuff, but the, those guys are geniuses. Wow. All right, so let's talk then. Dark Lynn's vision. I mean, the death of God. We got the ram, we got the snake, we got the falcon. So, yeah. can you explain more of that religious imagery we saw and its meanings? I I could stumble through trying to explain it to you. Happily, <laughs> this was not my episode. So um, Eric, uh, you know, did a, a great job of, of realizing that those moments and putting them. Um, I think, well, actually, was it my episode? Because I think- I think we, so. I think it was in the beginning. I didn't write it. We moved that into the end of my episode, I think. Uh, uh, episode okay. nine, right? Yeah. But it was originally in episode 10. So that beat was something that Eric Carrasco wrote. Uh, and um, and so that was, but it was based on a document, I believe, Teddy Biaselli. He'll be so mad at me for saying this, but I believe Teddy wrote up a document about religion in Eternia and sort of, you know the symbols and, and the symbolism and and what what's sort of what our baseline was going to be for how we dealt with you know magic and and sort of the the religion that sort of was that lived around it or the religions that sprung up around it um and so he was taking from that i think as a source and uh, and and you know made some some 
some beautiful, beautiful stuff that they ended up, you know, that I get to take credit for because they put it in, moved it into my episode. How did my episode end? My episode just, it was just the, uh, I think it still ends on the cliffhanger of Scareglow being uh, resurrected, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that was, yeah, we didn't, we hadn't gotten to the, 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 the that particular other imagery yet. Sky- I assume... I assume they were religious deities or something. That vision, I think, I, maybe they're going to be mad at me if I'm not supposed to reveal this. But that okay. Means, the way it plays out in the episode is that it's Darkland's vision, right? Yes. I don't think it was written that way. I think it was written as Tila's vision when she when she's in the um, Tide of Transformation. I think it's part of her, I think. Uh, by the way, I could absolutely be wrong. I don't remember Eric's episode the way it, the original script for Eric's episode. I don't remember it as well as I like to. Could I'm have sorry, been, we're testing your recall. I'm sorry. <laughs> it could have been Evil and it could have been Darklin's vision in episode ten, but something tells me it was Tila's, and we ended up shifting it and gave it to to Darklin. But I don't know. I don't know. What did you think? Did you think it? Did you think it worked the way it the way it played out? I think so. I, I wasn't sure at first what I was looking at, but I, I kind of tried to imagine that these were separate deities, separate symbols of religion mm-hmm. uh, that represented the death of God. And, you and know, again, a different we, kind of magic, right? Yeah. 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 And um, I don't know. I just thought it was fascinating. I would love if there's, you know, if there's a doctrine. I would love to read it, you know. <laughs> I, I was actually hoping it would come out in the uh, the art book, but um, no. There, there's all kinds of neat stuff floating around that maybe someday they'll put in a big omnibus. You know, awesome. I'd love for them to to publish the. I will. I always would love if they would publish the the you know original drafts of the scripts, so you can see just how wild and you know different things maybe were in yeah. s- certain situations. I mean, there's a. There's a whole plot line in episode seven that was, we had to jettison. That um, that oh, there's actually a couple. <laughs> there's a couple of things that that, uh, that we had to get rid of. But you know, I'd love it if somebody, if people had an interest in those things and would love to see them combined. And if yeah, that'd be great, a book, you know, publish a book with all that stuff. All right. Well, let's see if you remember this. You had mentioned. Um in that same land of the dead commentary that Oracle's death was originally written as gory. So can we describe what we missed? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's what Oracle. happened? Right. What'd you do to Orca? <laughs> just pull it up. And since we're testing my, my uh, recall, I'm going to completely cheat and go back to the <laughs> Oh, you know what? I don't, this is the original draft. Yeah, I don't have the original draft in front of me, but um, I, uh, I think I don't know. Maybe gory is is very strong a word, <laughs> um, but gore. I don't know. I mean, like it was the idea wasn't well, the idea wasn't that it was blood and guts so much as it was very final. It was, it was clear that he was physically torn apart. Um, poor Griffin. Poor Griffin. 
and so that, that that was that was what I wrote. I mean, I wrote it to be like I didn't want there to be any question when I wrote it. My version was I want everybody to say he is dead. There's no coming back from this. Um, and you know, I can get really you know focused on things like that to the to the point where they probably sat around in the edit and were like, "But why?" <laughs> because. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now we just have to explain how he was ripped apart and get you know so i think probably they made the right choice <laughs> um yeah uh, but yeah that was the, i i think i just got really i was i really wanted to 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 live with the fake out on that i really because it wasn't that it was a fake out it was that i just wanted there to be no question yeah. So that we could all experience the feeling of he's really gone, and not go wait. You know, it's like that thing. <laughs> what do you see? You, you watch movies all the time where you're like, oh, but so and so's dead, you know, and then it'll turn to the other and be like, yeah, but we didn't see the body. And once you realize that, you're like, oh, they're coming back, and then they come back. You know, I yeah. do that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> where's the body? See the body. Uh, and then yep. sometimes, like in you know, like Doctor Strange, you know, like it's like well, we saw the body, and he still came back. Tough needle thread. So, well, moving past the when I say gory, what I wanted was gut wrenching screams. Entrails spilling out of <laughs> A Mortal Kombat fatality. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it should be. Oh, just imagine Colt's son now. <laughs> After that. He might, yeah, he might be in counseling. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I guess, you know, kind of dealing more with these ideas of how things work within Eternia and within the mythos of, of Masters of the Universe. With Savage He-Man, you know, when Adam calls down the power without his sword. Yes. Is there what, I, I guess, how does that work? Yeah. Conversation <laughs> about that? Because it's, well, it's amazing. And, and, you know, and, and let, let me preface that a little bit more. I mean, there has been precedent of him being able to do this within the comics. You know, it's kind of one of those elements of who Adam is. That was the so thing you... we felt was important. First of all, Savage E-Man started, you know, because we were we were excited to play with all the toys, and we were really interested mm -hmm. in like, the original designs for He-Man and and um, and how we could sort of get that in this idea of this hulking, all power, mindless version of of He-Man, and what would that be? Um, and that was a thing that we talked about from the very beginning and that stayed in through the, some things came and went, but that was something we knew we wanted to kind of play with. And, um, and so the actual, and, and no, I know, I don't remember how we thought of it in the room, but the, the, the idea of calling down the power without the sword, we thought that's going to be not only like we knew as fan boys that we, we were like, and girls that we were like, that's going to be a badass moment. Like, you know, just to be able to see that happen and you're, or like the beginning of it happening, it's going to be like, wait, wait, what? No, they're what? not going to right? <laughs> And then to be able to give you something weird that's the result of that, you know, was we knew that that would be fun because we were having fun with it. 
the concept, you know, that it just so happened to be something that thematically fit with things that we were trying to play with, which is this idea that that the the key wasn't really the sword anymore, that it was Adam himself, and that his connection to the power had grown so strong that that it, it would bend to his will in that way and terrify Skeletor, Skelet God, you know, yeah. because of that. Uh, because he doesn't know how he did it and has to know. <laughs> because <laughs> because the, the whole concept was, you know, look, the, we were we were really excited and interested in the idea of the fabulous secrets, you know, um, the secrets of Castle Grayson, like fabulous secret powers. And, you know, like that's stuff that really interested us. So this seemed like a real secret power that he had and something that, Here's Skelegod thinking he has learned all the secrets of Grayskull, and then one more suddenly shows up. It's you know he's it's irresistible to him. It's catnip. So I feel like Adam, even if he knew what was going to happen when he called it down, would have still done it because it's it's one thing that would have would have, would shut down Skeletor in that moment. His insatiable lust for you know, to learn every last secret, to be the master of the universe, you know? Yeah. So that's all those things were kind of things we were talking about in the room and 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 we, we decided, I mean, I think originally Savage He-Man was, I think originally going to be an even bigger, he was going to be in the, in the show a little bit more. I think he might have been originally slated to be in a couple of episodes, if not more. Um, but as the story sort of shaped up, it, it made sense to uh, to really have him turn at the end of six and explore that in seven and 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 let that go in uh, in seven as well when when he sees dad. So this was less tied to Adam and just another secret of Castle Grayskull where previous champions could do the same thing. If you know, we didn't we didn't really talk about that. And so I'm more I can't definitively say one way or the other if this is something that other champions can do or not. I I think the way we talked about it was that this is something that is in this circumstance, the way it's happening is uniquely Adam. And and I don't know if that's because of of who he is inside or if it's because he um uh you know if it's if it's i don't know if it's a power that's been available to all the champions and it's uniquely adam here because of the the reason he's doing it and the way he's employing it i mean that could be too you know i i don't have the answer to that and i wouldn't feel like it's my place to say what the answer to that is um you know my my opinion on it is simply that, and I think the way we talked about it in the room was that this is one of the reasons why Adam is special. You know, there's something special about him. And um, I, I mean, there's a lot of things that are special about him, I think. But, but it's when he's got one more trick up his sleeve and, you know, nobody really knew. And maybe he didn't, you know, in that moment, it sounds like he doesn't even know. He says, I've always wondered what would happen, you know, if I if I called it down without the sword. So, you know, 
in our in our I guess in our university he hadn't done it yet, um, but yeah. uh, you know he could very well be playing around. He could know what it is uh, that's going to happen. <laughs> you guys did kind of shine the light on him as he was special in regards to him being on Praternia, and he was the only one that chose his lesser form, and he felt like he was, a, you he know, he chose his form because he thought that was his greater form. That's an interesting. Yeah, his lesser form. Yeah, Les lessers is always in quotations. I mean, for him, well, in yeah. situation which is interesting. You know, it's to him that's his greater form. But that moment right and there in that episode, really yeah, it felt like he was unique among all the previous champions. So yeah, yeah. Oh, so um, the end of episode four originally had when when they when they meet Adam in Paternia was there was a lot more stuff that happened before after orco died and before they ran into adam and the way they ran into adam in the original version of the story was um you know it was a little bit more uh action-packed and he they thought he was you know somebody else and and uh and and he and tila get into a get into a scuffle <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, and it is then this moment of the light comes you know shines in and she realizes who she's you know tussling with Adam. oh that would have been amazing <laughs> um but there was there was a couple of scenes that led even before that that kind of explained some paternia stuff and everything but it stopped the episode dead like you once you once you the orco thing was so climactic that we kind of right then at that point you're on a collision course with the end of the episode and to sort of have another scene to explain now what's happening in Paternia. And then now we're going to have this adventurous thing where this fight happens. And then, Oh, look who it is. It's a big twist. It's Adam. It didn't get us anything except feeling like the show was going on a little long, like when the exciting thing already happened, you know, it also gave us the opportunity to end that episode on a real downer bummer note from Bear McCreary who was playing the theme, like, you know, as a fugue to, uh, to, to yeah. or was a memorial, which was, you know, if I wasn't crying already at that point, my yeah. God. <laughs> so, so you, um, can you give us any more insight on Scareglow, the shadow of a ruler, now ruler of shadows? Yeah. So look, I was, the, that's a response to Tila saying Skeletor. And he's like, not quite. Yeah. And that's because me, I'm being a nerd and I'm like, I'm like, I want to play with the idea that maybe he is the evil ghost of Skeletor from <laughs> like he's a yeah. future ghost of Skeletor. Oh. Like that was what I was kind of originally playing with. That was something we did not go with, but I think the line still made sense and still stood as its own thing you know, the shadow of a ruler, now ruler of shadows and this, uh, and this something, and this something place, I don't know, forsaken, or I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, you know, because I, I also love the idea that he's, he's, he's once, he was once a great ruler, you know, perhaps. Yeah. Who knows what he was? I like the idea that there's backstory that we don't know, and that gives an opportunity for us to explore future stuff. I mean, that's why I love doing 
the Revelation comics so much because it's just got the the ability to to go in and, and play with the toys in a new way and talk about some flashbacks and lore stuff and do a big sort of, uh, you know, something that, that, you know, can really, something that will really divide the fandom in terms of the, the Skeletor, you know, backstory. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's Skeletor. So, and, you know, the end of that episode, the end of that issue is, you know, is he telling the truth or not? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll put a pin in that and get there in one <laughs> second. But, uh, and we're going to close out this podcast with those comics. But one more question. You were going to show Orko's face. Any ideas? Oh, I think that was something. I, I wasn't something I think I was, I, I, I mean, I was around when we talked about it, but it wasn't okay. something I was pushing for. Although I say that, and then if you cut to cut to Arrested Development, like video of me, you know, he did. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, let's show him. You know, in the room, which I very possibly could have done, but swept up in the moment. <laughs> I think it was supposed to happen in your episode, though. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't write that in. Okay. And I think because originally that was something we talked about earlier than when I actually went to script. Um, but that was a conversation I think that was happening with the directors and with Kevin more than it was happening with the writers. Uh, Cause it was a visual thing and, you know, it didn't have, uh, it didn't necessarily have any bearing on what I was doing with, with my part of the story. Okay. I like not showing it though. I, yeah. I like, I think that Kevin's right when he talks about it. He, I think he says like, kind of would have been a letdown, like no matter how you did it, it, it kind of would have felt like a little goofy. Yeah. Um, maybe. I, I think he said that. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, and so I, I, I tend to kind of agree with, I tend to just agree with Kevin anyway, not because he was my boss, but because he's usually right about these things. <laughs> they also had plans to reveal his face in filmation as well, but that never happened. So Right. Yeah. I'm sure that's what we were referencing. I mean, I'm sure that was the the idea was, you know, if there was something that that was sitting out there that that was unturned, the stone that unturned with with Orco, that maybe we should do it. I think yeah. we did sometimes talk about stuff like that, about like something that might be hanging out there. I mean, the big one obviously is Tila's, you know, origin and who she is and and you know that that was a that was something that we saw in classic He-Man, and um, you know that motivated a lot of the first half, certainly, of uh, of Revelation and uh, and 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 ultimately the ending as well. Yeah, that's why um, me and Colt couldn't figure out all the criticisms of so many people saying Tilo is going to be He-Man, and we're like, don't you know the filmations? Don't you know her lineage? I mean, yeah, they're setting no this up. Like her, He-Man. And then they knew they were wrong. They got told, and so they were like, "No, no, Andra, Andra, yeah. right." Andra had a different name originally, and we couldn't, we weren't going to, we were told we couldn't use that name. And then she was a different character originally in the very beginning. And um, and then we were, I said, you know, I want to go search through the the lore and and see if there's a a sort of character out there that we could bring to life and and. Uh, and, 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 you know, 
and, and visit and learn more about and somebody who people wouldn't be too pissed off about because there wasn't a ton of lore surrounding them. And, um, and we came up with Lieutenant Andra. And once we did that, once we started thinking about who she was and who she could be in this show, then that just opened up a whole lot of stuff. And, and that character became one that we really all uh, gravitated toward. She was very much like the companion in Doctor Who, who is your way in to the story of this wild story that's happening with this wild central character. But that companion character is like you, who's kind of like off from the outside, who's seeing all this for the first time. And, um, and, and you, can't, you can't help but sort of feel a camaraderie with a character like that. And then Tiffany Smith came in and, uh, and she's so good. And she's such a, a wonderful human being. She is such a wonderful person. And, uh, and she did such a great job uh, bringing that character to life. I'm, I'm so happy that she got to do it. And what, a, what a feather in her cap too, like a, a real iconic Motu character, you know? Yeah. She's, she's originated uh, in animation. And in, on screen, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the way Tony Todd has gotten to do with Scarecrow. Yeah, and she got her own action figure, which has got to be cool. Action it's fantastic. Tony's had some action figures before, though. <laughs> I could never hear anybody else now, but Tony Todd as Scarecrow. I don't know that I'm, I'm ever going to be able to hear somebody else do it. Uh, I remember as soon as that announcement was made, I was overjoyed that it was Candyman that was going to be Scarecrow. And he's you know, just, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That's perfect. You know, his voice when, you know, you know, Tony Todd, but he's got such incredible range within the voice that is Tony Todd that it, it's, it's, it's its own thing. Scareglow has his own sound. Uh, yeah. Tell me you got the book of Scareglow, Tim, the, um, the exclusive Scareglow figure oh. toy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get it. And, oh no. And, and here's where it pays to know people. <laughs> I emailed someone at Mattel. And I said, wow. I do not want any special treatment. I am happy to pay for this figure. I just missed the window. Is This was from my episode. Is there any way that I can, you know? And so wonderful of them. They were like, we, we think we got one. And they sent me one. Ah, awesome. Which is, you know, just so stand up and wonderful of them. Yeah. Very, very happy. They sent me a few things uh, when we started, which were, which were great. Okay, so uh, we, we talked about my origin story. What I, yeah. left, I left out, 10 years of my life working as a hired gun host. Well, in person for events for Mattel. I worked wow. 10 years for Mattel at Toy Fair and at Comic-Con and other things where I would um, I worked mostly for Mattel games and I would like play demo the new games that were coming out and play them with people. And it was a job that paid my rent while I was in the writer wilderness. And uh, 10 years I did that. And, uh, and wow. then I got to come back and write for Masters of the Universe, which is just, you know, what a ridiculous, what a ridiculous footnote in my life. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. Now we needed to go full circle. You need to do a uh, Masters of the Universe commercial. <laughs> there you go. Kevin and Jay did one. Did you see the one they did? Yeah. 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 Oh, my it's God. Hilarious. It's so hilarious. <laughs> it is so funny. It's so funny. I wish it was on TV. Like, it was so good. 
Oh, it's on YouTube, but it's great. Yeah. I wish that it had been blanketing the airwaves because people would have just fallen all in love with those guys all over again because of that. It was so funny. Yeah. All right. So finally, we uh, we can't close out this podcast series without discussing the wonderful prequel comic series. So, um, you know, what's contained in these four comics? Was it always meant to be told in comic form or was some of these concepts and story beats originally attended for the Netflix series? No, I mean, look, that came later uh, after the show was well into production. And Kevin and Rob called me and asked if, and I had just started working in comics for the first time. Like literally, I think it might've been, I I had been doing some stuff with DC and none of my comics were on shelves yet. I was working on stories for DC and they uh, they called and, and I don't even think they knew that. I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing comics with DC right now. They were like, oh, well, do you want to work with us on, on, on this? And we've got an idea for story and we'll write out a story treatment. And then, you know, if you'll go off and script it for Dark Horse and, and, and our artists, that would, that would be good. So um, I was like, absolutely. Are you kidding? I would love to, because I knew what they wanted to do. What they wanted to do was do a, you know, four issues, each from, uh, you know, the perspective of uh, a different main character in Revelation. And that would sort of help kind of, you know, uh, uh, give a little bit more, to their backstory or their their motivations or what was happening, things that were happening in the show. So it was directly connected to what was happening in the series. And since I knew the, what was happening in the series, it would be easier to go to me than to go to like, you know, anybody else. So I was very happy they asked me to do it. Kevin could have written these himself, by the way, but he is incredibly generous and offered for me to do it. So um, so we we did that together. And, uh, and Mindy Lee was an incredible artist. Uh, who I actually know from animation too. She does a lot of work in animation. Um, uh, we worked just really well together. She was she was so 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 good on this. I love her stuff, and it's a very unique style that is not the style of the show. Um, but it's not so, and it's not anything you've seen before from Masters of the Universe. So it's really visually uniquely its own. Um, which it has, has it has such a liveliness to the way she draws the characters and stuff. It really. Yeah, know, and it evokes something that that I haven't often seen in classic Master of the Universe art styles. Yeah, it's, and really, it's, it's just beautiful. Different. It's a very interesting perspective. I mean, it's not uh, you know you're not looking at very realistic like Alex Ross type of you know mm-hmm. uh, you like could be live action sort of things. You're not looking at filmation or or even revelation. You're seeing Mindy bringing her artistic flair and style to her interpretation of, of these iconic characters. I mean, her Skeletor is terrifying, I think. Um, uh, So anyway, it was a a great, wonderful experience, especially I would say when you asked about the connection to Revelation, I mean, it was always gonna be very deeply rooted in Revelation, but the, the, um, the, I think one of the reasons they came to me was because they knew that they wanted to involve the story some to some level of the Orlax of Primaria, which is one of those things that I went nutty about in the writing process on the series where I was like, okay, 
I'm writing episode nine and I'm going to depict the Grayskull dungeon. And I don't think these creatures that we know and have seen in the Grayskull dungeon for all of our lives, I don't think all of them have been identified. They don't all have names and I love naming stuff. So, so, um, and there's no getting around that giant tentacle. <laughs> so I said, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I, I came up with this, this, this sort of what really kind of sounded like a title, which is the Orlax of Primaria, which sounded so regal and interesting for a, you know, fleshy tentacle. Um, and the, there was something that inspired Kevin and Rob in that, and they wanted to sort of base the comic in, in, in some ways around the story of the, the Orlax. The Orlax is the narrator of the comics when you hear a narrator's voice. And it's a really like, I tried to do this really heightened comic book language that we haven't seen for a long time because, you know, this very haughty, beautifully succinct, Shakespeare, even uber Shakespearean level of, of speech because of the irony of that the, that the Orlax can't actually communicate verbally with us, but that these are in comics, we can show you what he's thinking and, and saying without actually having to like dub it or do something dumb that we would do in animation. Yeah. It's one of those unique things that comics let you do that, that you couldn't do on screen, I think, believably in, in a satisfying way. And so the irony of him being this incredible speaker, you know, who will never be able to really speak. Uh, was was really attractive to me, and and it was it's ultimately a very simple story. the 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 idea is the Orlax, the Orlax came to warn us about the revelation, you know, about the celestial apex, about what's coming, um, because in his dimension he's already experienced it or, or can see it at least. And um, but he but the, the the drama the tragedy is when he gets here he can't tell us he can't tell us this is coming for you and we mistake his attempts at trying to uh, to help us as attacks and he gets attacked and used and and um, and his his powers are unfortunately poisonous to us but they're normal to him and and he you know, so they still do you really think he's a danger so you lock him up in, in the dungeon. Isn't also part of the tragedy that, that he kind of caused the events? You know, I got this whole Terminator mind bending thing where, I mean, he, uh, it was because of the Orlax that um, Skeletor learned about the secrets of Castle Grayskull and it was the Hall of Wisdom. Yeah. And, and also, you know, him, He Man's and his interaction in the past, um, you know, he was, he, he was an active participant in, in you know ultimately what was what was unfolding and he didn't know it at the time at the time yeah yeah um the, there's you know yeah there's some fun little timey-wimey stuff and some interesting stuff about you know he's trying to get information from from the orlax obviously but that stuff was you know they they wanted me to do that because of my connection to the orlax i guess because i was like ah, i'm gonna name him the orlax of primaria <laughs> they also let me do stuff like name like the realm of apollos in the heart of the great perpetual uh -huh. You know, which like just you just turn me loose and let me just start doing things like that. I love like that kind of word world. Not just I like the world building that involves wordsmithing. Like if I can come yes. up with titles and names for things like that, I love it. So um so that was that was stuff I was really attracted to. But the biggest thing 
that really attracted me to it was the Evil In story. I mean, I'm a huge Evil In fan, and I knew that what we were, what I was going to be doing in that issue, was very much was the closest thing to an episode of Revelation as we were going to get in the show, and it's directly tied to episode eight. And Dia's Dia wrote a scene where we see young Lin, um, you know, uh, and 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 um, and she's, you know, we, we get a glimpse. And I thought, well, let me take that glimpse and then expand out a little bit and just widen the lens a little bit of the angle on that. Lens, so we can see a little bit more of what happened before and what happened after and what led her to to really, you know, into into the clutches of, of Skeletor and Hordak. And um, so that was the issue that I I was most looking forward to. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think that it it's... Um, you know, I just wanted, I just, I, I just like getting in Evelyn's head because uh, I don't think she's evil. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but I, <laughs> I don't think she's evil. I think, you know, I think that there's, she's, she's just has far too much depth to be something as simple as evil. And I think the name Evil Lynn is a facade. I think it is, you, you take that name so that your enemies will underestimate you. I think, um, I, and your friends. You know, I think in regards to Evil Lynn and who she is and, you know, like what Orko says, what, you know, she's not born evil and all this stuff. One of the themes that kind of came through for me in watching Revelation was we're really exploring two different relationships. We're exploring the relationship of Adam and Tila and kind of, you know, how they feel about each other and where that ultimately leads and what the underlying truth of that relationship is which is love you know and then you have this relationship between evil Lynn and skeletor and how you know what that leads to which <laughs> is that really something that love you know it's, yes it's, yeah it's not a joke with harley quinn in a way you know um yeah yeah it's it, it's uh there, there's the, uh, there's no question i mean we were dealing with some really adult ideas of you know he-man and tila's relationship is so much less complex than they think it is so they're very much like teenagers thinking that they have a very much more complex they love each other like that's it like the, all they have to do is just accept the fact that they love each other and then you know right i mean that's that's kind of it yeah. we all feel like that i think we all feel that way about them right i don't know maybe yeah. I, I feel like most fans i talk to think that um i'll tell i'll tell you this real quick i tell this to everybody i can but that's how i've seen their relationship for as long as i've been a fan to yeah. the point where when my wife and i got married 16 years ago we had he-man and tila action figures as our cake toppers on our <laughs> wedding cake wonderful. it's wonderful and if you look and we've seen it in the uh, expanded universe, other parts of the lore, right? I mean, we know yeah. that they have this connection. It's, but it's simpler than they're making it. <laughs> yeah. The difference is the flip side of that is is Skeletor and Evelyn have a a very complicated relationship that they treat as simple, and and that is ultimately to its detriment <laughs> and to their detriment, both of them. Um, they need to take more care with each other. Both of them do, and they don't. And it yeah. has repercussions. Yes. Okay. 
So earlier we were talking a little bit about, you know, that issue with Skeletor and whether he's lying or not with ambiguity that he presents in that issue. Um, and to, you know, it, it feels ambiguous up until the very end. And then he pulls out that amulet that is the amulet that his wife was wearing. In the what, story he might've made up. Sure. You know, I mean, right. yes. <laughs> yeah. I so, mean, I think that amulet is just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question. I mean, look, there's the other, the other, I mean, there's, look, there's a lot of different, there's more, those aren't the only two ways to read that issue that, that he's either telling you the truth or that he's lying. There are other ways to read it as well. And I think the truth might be a little bit more complex and gray than, than the black and white version. Well, what's that? Can you share a little? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough said. <laughs> and I think maybe we'll, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll know more in the next coming year or two. I, I did not say that. You did not. <laughs> you did not. For reasons, I, I did not say that. No, right? Yeah. I, but I do. But look, yeah, I, I, but I, really, I, I believe. That. You said that, not me. Um, I I did. That my hope is that someday we'll get to explore that. I mean, I would love to get to do some more comics and, and explore some more of that stuff. But I, I really thought it was important to leave. In fact, I, I, had, I don't, they, maybe they'll remember it differently, but I'm pretty sure I said to Kevin and Rob, like they were a little bit more definitive about the ending of that story and that issue. And I said, need to leave it open-ended like i think we need to leave it like there's a question about whether this is true or not or or what and um because i i, I don't think that i don't feel comfortable saying here and now in the in a prequel book in when we haven't even released the whole show like that this is definitively how his origin plays out like i wanted to make sure that there was room for it to expand or contract or whatever, you know, um, maybe I'm just protecting myself. I don't know. But um, so I said, let me, I pitched them the idea of how I wanted to do it. I showed it to them and they liked it. Sort of the leaving it more of a, leaving it with more of a question. Um, and, and yeah, the amulet does lead you to believe that he's telling the truth. Um, you know, uh, but who knows? <laughs> So I can tell you a he, great story about this mouse. <laughs> and I'm holding the mouse is real, but maybe the story is complete crap. <laughs> well, but you, you know the whole Skeletor, Keldor angle. Like, um, filmation has always been... Oh, who? Skeletor and who? No, just... <laughs> <laughs> filmation has always presented Skeletor as a demon from another dimension. Then later... In the, I mean, the comics that you know, we we had that right. Like he was a demon from another right. dimension. That was yeah. what we were really. That's what we were wanting to explore in the comic. Yeah, right. So he's definitely. I mean, is that realm real? The the one you named, realm of Apollos. I can't pronounce I mean, it correctly. The realm of of Apollos and the heart of the great perpetuum. Um, yes. Is that is real? It, 
as far as I'm concerned, yes. And I mean, I wrote it, so I, you know, yeah, it's real. Um, but I, I can't, I don't speak for Mattel, who actually is the IP holder. So you know, they come over and say, mm, it's not real. Like, I mean, I don't know. And I'd be like, well, what did I do then? You know, what am I doing? Over All right. What, what about this? And I hope the, the amazing idea of the Havoc staff being the head of one of Skeletor's enslavers. Is that real? <laughs> I mean, in the story, right? I mean, it's, it's real. It's story. really cool, but it's also it also could really be a. All right. Well, whose idea was that? That was a terrific idea and a terrific visual. It was cool. I think it was. I think it was. I'm willing to take the blame for it because more people hated that than liked it. So I'm willing really? to say what. It was I love that um, moment. Oh, it's a wonderful moment. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that was, that was something that I pitched and wanted to do. And, um, you know, I thought it would be fun. Uh, There's really backlash it, over that? I, I didn't know. I think it, 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 there's a feeling that it might trample upon other parts of the lore in terms of the origin of the Havoc staff. So... There was uh, there's questions about that that are perfectly legitimate. Hmm. <laughs> well, we always took it that when Ted Biaselli came out and said that um, you know that everything in the filmation show counted except three changes he made. Um, one was um, Orko's power set. Uh, two was Roboto not being from another planet but being built by Man at Arms, and number three. Um, Tila, excuse me, um, the sorcerers having baby Tila prior to becoming the sorcerers with man at arms. He did indicate in an interview that everything else counted in that show. And as a spiritual sequel to that show, I always thought anything outside of that show in different lore you could pull from, but you didn't necessarily have to adhere to. Or were you worried about adhering to all of the lore out there as much as you could you know when well, we, when we were in the room i remember we bandied around some ideas that had to do with the 2000 show and i think kevin very clearly said I, I think we should we should we don't need to spend too much time on that mythology like let's this show is a sequel to the classic era and so let's root ourselves in the classic era stuff and and let ourselves be guided by that more so than you know later stuff in the comics or in the in the uh in the uh on tv um i mean we're counting the the the, the dolph lundgren movie obviously in the, in the classic era <laughs> but like new adventures is we, we i don't know if we'd consider that i don't know we, we didn't talk much about that happily because that wasn't the time frame in which we were working, I think. So we got to avoid that question at that time. I don't think a lot of us talk about the new adventures too much. <laughs> hey, I mean, to each there are a lot of people that love it. So. It's more He-Man, so that's good. Yeah, That's how I feel. That's what, when everybody complained about when the Star Wars prequels came out, uh, I was like, okay, fine. But you have legitimate concerns and notes about filmmaking technique or about storytelling. And I, I get all that. 
but can't we just at least spend a little time being happy that they made more? I'm just glad they made more. And the same thing with the sequel Star Wars stuff. People all, you know, will go fight to the death over them. And I'm like, but they made more. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe not what we all wanted, but it's what somebody wanted. And there's a lot of people who love it. So I really think the silent majority loved it. I, there, there was so much love for the show and we see a lot of it and Colt and I just adore it. And I, I wasn't, it wasn't hyperbole. Your show masters of the universe revelation is the reason why we exist. I mean, not we, our mothers give birth to us, of course, but you know what I mean? Why for Eternia <laughs> to give birth to you. So that's, <laughs> but why this this podcast exists this website exists and there's been such a rejuvenated fandom you know um fans that um haven't thought he-man since the filmation show back in the 80s that are suddenly have jumped you know feet first right back into the community and now are collecting the new figures and excited about the new series and there is so much excitement we see around the show and um, it was really a blessing for Masters of the Universe fans. I mean, we, we yeah, couldn't I mean, be happier. You guys are the ideal audience because I think you guys were the guys we were really making it for because that's how we all went into it. We, we went into it wanting to celebrate classic He-Man, but in a way that gives you something new that had grown up with you and, and, um, and you know, wouldn't negate stuff that, that, you know, that you hold dear, that we all hold dear, but would expand upon it and maybe give us, give it some more, you know, some, see it from some other angles with some more nuance. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I couldn't be prouder of the, of the show from a writer's perspective and, uh, you know, and, and, and of Kevin, who, like I said, worked, worked his ass off on this show. And I think just spectacular. He'd never run a writer's room before. He'd never worked with other writers he, he, the first day, he was like, I don't know what I'm doing, you guys. And then within two minutes, he proceeded to like, like a master conductor of an orchestra, like take ideas from this one and that one and this one and like meld it all together. And, you know, like he did everything that you want a showrunner to do in a writer's room. He just instinctively knows how to do that. And I think that comes from being a film director, working with all different departments and getting everybody on the same page. And, uh, but, you know, the, the love that we went into this with, I mean, it's it's the kind of thing we're, like I say, we're going to have with us for the rest of our lives because of the relationships too. I mean, you know, with Eric and Dia and Mark and Kevin and, and Teddy and Rob and, and then Pat and Adam and everybody. I mean, we we just felt like we were this scrappy little team of folks who were doing something that happened to get a lot of attention, but we were really a bunch of nerdy kids who were excited to play with these toys. I think this is really going to grow on people too. I think in 10 years and 15 years, you know, any of the rest of the naysayers is just going to die down and people are going to really appreciate the show where hopefully in 20 years, you guys will be sitting all together and it'll be a reunion just to discuss the wonderful thing you did. I don't say this as a matter of self-promotion or anything. I think objectively it's, it's a good show. Like, you know, it's, is it the greatest show ever made? I don't know what is. What I can tell you is this is a good show. Like, yeah. so, you know, I'm proud of it. And, I, and everybody is. 
Um, so Good. that's why, and that is, and so is Netflix. And that is why, uh, you know, it's, it's not the, the necessarily the end of the road, right? <laughs> All right, so you can't blame us for trying. Last question, Tim. Masters of the Universe Revelation. What can you tell us? Can you tell us anything? Re revolution. Tell us everything. Revolution. Masters Did I say revelation? I don't know. I think you said revelation. <laughs> uh, they're pretty close, which is on purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, let's see. What can I tell you about Masters? I I don't even think I can tell you that I have worked on it. Oh, I just let slip that I worked on. Masters. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, that's on that. So that's great. I was wondering if you were working on it because um, Kevin Smith did announce that he wrote one of the episodes, episode five. He publicly announced that on Facebook. So I was like, is is Kevin doing the writing duties now? So um, five, and as the show as a showrunner does, though, I mean, you know, yeah. he, uh, they usually write the first and last episodes, and you know. Um, I, I guess what I mean uh, in, in terms to there's only five episodes announced and uh, well, we weren't sure, right? They hardly gave us just a few mor morsels to uh, chew on. So, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a shame? Only a few morsels to chew on. <laughs> well, keep chewing guys. I'll see you later. <laughs> I, I can literally say nothing because it would be so unfair to all the people that yeah. are hard at work on the show right now. Um, I will sure. say this. This is what I will say. I was very, very touched and blessed to be asked to come back and do a little bit more work uh, in this world that we all care about and, you know, so much and, uh, and, and, um, and that the experience for me was as if I had never stepped away from revelation. And, uh, it, it is, it is as joyful as it was then. So all the love and joy that went into, um, creating revelation is, you know, as we speak, going into uh, revolution and i know because i was you know i've been there <laughs> uh, i've gotten to experience it so i hope uh, i hope people like it all right well that's great um i believe that's and all I'll, we have i'll come back when we can actually talk about something oh that sounds awesome that sounds awesome right. seriously you have a open invitation here tim we appreciate you here uh whenever you want to come on shoot the breeze talk about motu please do even transformers even though i really struggled with those toys tim they took forever to transform yeah. <laughs> uh, what am i gonna do i don't I know can't figure them out. yeah the it took me the show and the movie really got me into it you know so there's something about yeah. those shows it's the, the way that the filmation show really got us into he-man you know Oh, I love the show and Megatron and Starscream and their bickering and um, but the toys. It took me 15 minutes to just to transform Starscream or Optimus Prime. And I was I like, this isn't playing. This is this is work. <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard to play toys. <laughs> All right, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. I'm 
before I graduated from Transformers to G.I. Joe at one point where I was like, yeah, I need a little less transformation. I just want to put the guys in the vehicles and have them fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a simple fellow, Tim. <laughs> I, <can't. laughs> I can tell. I, I heard your question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we definitely are. Uh, So do you have anything that you wanted to address that we haven't touched upon here today, Tim, at all? No, I I just um, I just want to say that uh, if you haven't seen The Long Halloween, the deluxe edition is coming out September 20th. (laughs) So check that out. (laughs) I got a plug in. I got a plug. Did, did Um, Did I read something on Twitter that you hadn't seen it i have not seen the the full cut of the whole thing together which includes additional material that uh that was cut from the first the two movies so i haven't seen it all put together yet so i'm excited i can't wait to see it um it's gonna have you know lots of additional stuff i know people keep asking me what the additional stuff is and it's like I, i i don't i can't i don't technically know but i know what i wrote that didn't make it in and so yeah, there's some stuff, and um, and it's a it's rated R, so that'll tell you the tone of the stuff that's going back in. So, uh, I can't wait. Yeah, and, and what about your uh, current comics that you're working on? Flashpoint Beyond is on shelves right now. It's a, a book that I've I've been writing with Jeff Johns and Jeremy Adams, and uh, it's a sequel to Flashpoint, which I, a lot of people remember from ten or so years ago. And uh, it's been absolutely one of the most joyous experiences I've ever had is working with those guys. And, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's out monthly right now. So I think issue three just came out last week. And uh, there's three more issues. It's a six issue series. And then I'm just hoping to get my butt in the door at Secret Stash Press, uh, Kevin Smith's label at Dark Horse that he's announced. So maybe I can get something past, uh, you know, him and me and Kev will be doing stuff back at Dark Horse again. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. Oh, that would be awesome. If you, if you could uh, do some more comics in the Revelation continuity, we would just adore that. So I appreciate that. I mean, they would be very different than the Revelation comic. I mean, that was that had a lot of real specific things that I was trying and going for and we wanted to do a, a, a version of the story telling that they wanted to do the four episodes basically. And, and I wanted to do the real heightened Orlacs narrator language, which could be very alienating, I think for some people to read. Um, but uh, but I, I, it harkened back to an old era of comics for me that I just couldn't resist playing around with. But I think that, yeah, if I went back, I would, I would love to go back and do some more and I have some ideas and I, you know, I, um, uh, you know, it'll be a lot of fun. Basically, I just want to resurrect new adventures in comics. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. I could be crazy. You don't know. Maybe that's what I want to do. Well, I bet you would do it good. <laughs> I couldn't do it worse. Oh, wait. No, did I? <laughs> no, I love you. Uh, definitely not. Definitely no worse. I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> It's all good, and I got nothing for nothing but love for all those shows. That's what I'm gonna say. So. That is really true, though. I really do love all of them. I don't... Yeah, even yeah. the bad ones. <laughs> yep. Even the '87 live action film. Yes, huge love. It's not for that. an objectively good movie, but it's so fun to watch. It's 
it's why we reference it. Revelation. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending so much time listening yeah. to blather on. I hope you have a fun time editing down anything I said into coherent sentences. I uh, we are not editing down a thing. We want a hundred hundred percent. Tim, <laughs> I can't wait to hear what the drop off is. Like, yeah, it was pretty much after hour three that people were like, oh, <laughs> we would happily stay here for a few more hours chatting with you. Well, we'll, this we'll, yeah. we'll has been again. really fun. Yeah, Thank we you. appreciate you like giving up your time to hang out with some uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation nerds, soon to be revolution nerds. Yeah, that's right. We're revolution nerds now. Yeah. <laughs> the revolution. The revolution has begun. Right. Yep. All right. So, uh, well, that's it. Uh, Tim, you were awesome. Thank you. Um, like I said, you have an open invitation here. Uh, whenever you want to come on, uh, please do. And um, thank you all out there for joining us today, either on YouTube, Amazon, Spotify, or Podbean. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please give us a like and a subscribe. And for all the latest news surrounding Masters of the Universe Revelation and Revolution, please visit us at foreternia.com. So, again, thank you, Tim. And uh, thank you all for listening. And let the power return. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>